tuned in to the round table right here on PSN Radio and YouTube. All right, everybody, welcome to another exciting edition of the round table show live right here on PSN Dash Radio. And of course, you got to put that dot com right after. And SoFlowRadio.com Simulcasting, I think this might be one of the first time in a long time that we simulcast the show on SoFlow. So for those who have not heard us on uh, SoFlow Radio before, welcome. If you haven't heard this show on there, this might be your first time. This is going to be a fun hour. And uh, after the hour, we have an amazing guest. Arlen Schumer is going to join us uh, for a full hour of nostalgia. And we're going to take a trip back into comic book heaven. And uh, we're going to talk about stuff like the Twilight Zone, uh, his projects coming up. He has a webinar that he's attending next week, which is uh, just uh, really, really cool stuff. Uh, and he has a whole lot of history when it comes to the world of comics. But joining me, as usual, here on the roundtable is the one and only right now, Mr. Zyda Ryder, one of the four locos who I was just enjoying on YouTube. Or I'm sorry, that's four nerds. That's right. Yeah, I'm on the four nerd, four nerds every Thursday night at seven thirty p.m. Eastern. Love the four nerds. The four locals. I'm telling you, man. Hashtag Shazam Sandberg, more Shazam cut. What do you think? <laughs> hey, you guys uh, went crazy with the Snyder cut. Might as well, you know, release. More Shazam. We need well, more we, Shazam. It, what's, what, it, what it all proves is that, you know, it works. You get enough people, you get enough people together, you, you're rallying around a cause, it'll, it'll make, it makes it happen. So that is, yeah, I mean, that is I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's proven. It's been proven that it works. So now, you know, if, if you want that Shazam, that longer Shazam cut, if it exists, you know, campaign for it, you might get it, especially now. <laughs> With the way we're, with the way AT and T is being so responsive and open, and you know we're going to get the air cut of Suicide Squad, we're going to get more Ben Affleck as Batman, we're going to get more of more of everything. So yeah, hold, if you want a longer hold, hold on, hold on, on. probably get it. Is that confirmed, Ben Affleck? Because I keep hearing different stories every day of the week. Well, it depends on who you talk to. But I'd say that's that's much, the problem. <laughs> you know, I, I'd say it's pretty much confirmed. Because what the, cause what the idea is is for him to have an HBO, uh, HBO have an HBO Max thing versus mm. versus having – because it's not – because the idea is they don't want it to compete with anything else that they do theatrically. So, like, they'll do, the, they'll do that Robert Pattinson Batman thing theatrically, and then they'll have – uh, uh, HBO Max would be for all the, you know, expanded universe kind of stuff. So we'll see, because DC is a multiverse. So we'll that see what happens. That is correct. And joining us on our roundtable multiverse is the one and only Mr. Johnny Alpha, another nerd of a different kind. What's up, buddy? How you doing tonight? I'm doing fine, and um, I'm all about the Lord and Miller cut of Solo. Like, you release that Lord and Miller cut, or, or yes. just stay home, man. There's nothing else <laughs> worth fighting fighting for or over. Now that the Snyder cut has been achieved, like I like the Lord and Miller cut of Solo is just just something that I don't even really want to see it. I just want it to like you just see yeah, it, just want it and get it made. You want to troll others. <laughs> 
Yeah, like my Snyder Cut friends, they get like this whole thing like, see, we bitched and whined enough that we got this. And you know, I kind of want to have like a like, bragging right of that, like that of my own. So, yeah, I'm going to really get in on the whole Lord oh, and Miller well, cut. Well, let's not, hey, let's not forget the Schumacher <laughs> cut of Batman Forever. There's a, there's a thing. It started up. So we'll yep. see what happens. They put they put Baby Yoda up in Solo, man. People will love that shit. All right? That's all you really have to do is edit it. It's so funny. You mentioned Solo right now. They could. You mentioned it right now. I completely forgot that that movie existed. We were trying to yeah do that, and then he brings it up and ruins our imagination all over again. <laughs> I, I, I totally forgot. Like, it's just like. Oh, that was a that was an actual movie. Oh, yeah. That was a thing they made that, and Ron Howard made that mistake. Oh Jesus! It's time to retire, Ron Howard. It's time to retire. You yeah. know, it's oh, it's I feel funny bad for Ron Howard because I don't think yeah. he really wanted to do it. I think he just did it as a favor. That's well, they, true. they bribed him. He's wanted to make Willow 2, and they told him, like, yeah, dude, you make this for us, and your Willow 2 is happening right away, Bell, which we still haven't seen that, which sucks because I'd rather have that than, like, any Star Wars after the last couple of things aside from The Mandalorian. I'd way rather have Willow. Other than Rogue One and The Mandalorian, uh, the Kennedy uh, years at Lucasfilms has been kind of a disappointment, you guys think? Uh, I mean, you know, the cartoon shows have been good. The cartoon shows have been good. um, They have, but but they've been overlooked by Dave Filoni and uh, John Favreau. So, I mean, we really could thank them for it. Even Mandalorian is more like a John Favreau, Dave Filoni project. Um, That's really, like, the main thing. The one that she really, like, went in and got right was Rogue One. And uh, you know, and the only reason they went in is because it, it was missing that that element, and uh, that one thing that really tied that movie together, and that was Vader at the end. And when they came up with that idea, they're like, "Let's put in Vader," and they're like, "Yeah, more Vader." So they threw that ending sequence there, which really tied that movie to a new hope. Um, so you know, that was an idea. I don't know if yeah, she initially was put, the one, put but maybe Yoda. Up in solo, and people will yeah. see it, man. Because Darth is what got um, is Darth <laughs> is what got Rogue One over. Then Baby Yoda could do the same thing for for a solo like extended cut. <laughs> oh man, I just I, I don't want to sit through another cut of Solo. It's just it's the character ruining at this point because you know the the whole mystery behind Han Solo meeting Luke, Ben, the audience for the first time. You know, once you see too much backstory, it kind of ruins that character. And there's some characters you really like want to have that mystery. I always said Solo was one of them. If you must do it, you have to nail the casting, and they really like butchered it. So, but at this point, yeah, they should have got Shia. They should have got Shia. Of course, perfect. Shia LaBeouf. LaBeouf is it LaBeouf or LaBeouf? How do you pronounce it? LaBeouf. I always I've always said (laughs) LaBeouf. I've always heard other people say LaBeouf, so... Like, if he becomes a rapper, if he becomes a rapper, he could be Shia Lil Buff. Lil Buff. Lil Buff Pump, yeah. (laughs) Shia Lil Buff Pump. There you go. You gotta have, like, an extra stupid word in there, too. It's gotta be little something and then something really weird, like... um, like, There's, like, little space ghost perp and, like, little Uzi Vert, and, you know, like, all their names, like, are weird nowadays, so... 
Yeah, you gotta have like a weird third name on there too. Does it get you know more weirder than Shia Lil Buff? Come on. Uh, well, you could add like you know another an extra word in there, but now it's gonna just get way too long. Much like you know, yeah, you know, like, you want to keep those things short, compact. What about XXXTentacion, or however you said his name? He had, like, a really kind of long, goofy one. Who? XXXTentacion. He's, like, that one, like, SoundCloud kid that died a couple years ago. Everybody still talks about him. No clue who that is. No, he was pretty pretty big there for a minute, and then he got shot. I'm surprised he's going to get bigger, because that's kind of what happens. Yeah, it was six nine. Your hero, so I figured you. I, I, that's a mystery in the universe, right there. We should put that in the Twilight Zone category and ask Garland later on. Uh, how is that guy still alive? I mean, he snitched on everybody, and he went from facing twenty years to he's out, you know, out of prison because he snitched, and somehow, rainbow bright and all, he's still living. So, I guess the streets Did don't care anymore. Did you guys watch anything cool? Have you guys, like, watched any cool movies since our last show? I mean, I checked out the um, new Netflix uh, movie Old Guard, which is based on probably my favorite Greg Rucka comic ever, and they nailed mm. it, man. It was such a, like, faithful adaptation. Like, did you guys check anything cool out this week? Checked no, you know what? a cool movie uh, a oh, what you watch? ago from the 1960s. Uh, wow, called, that's not a called, new movie. <laughs> called The Swimmer with uh, Burt Lancaster. Fantastic Whoa. film. I didn't know he had acting ability like that. It was, it was, it was really great. Wow, that's not, yeah, I love classics, not man. At all, yeah. but it, but, but it was, it was ahead of its time. YouTube, to say yeah. YouTube, it was one of those YouTube classics you could watch for free. Uh, no, I have. Well, I do have it on my um, um, media server. Ah, gotcha. Wink, wink. It's a library edition. Well, it's just recently come up for pre-order on uh, Scream Factory, I believe. Uh, They're putting it out on Blu-ray. They're doing a special edition Blu-ray version of it where they're only doing, like, I think 2,000 copies. And it's up for pre-order now. It's it's totally, and I I think it's a great movie. I think it's totally worth owning on physical uh, media. So I, of course, uh, pre-ordered it because I definitely want to have a, uh, a physical copy because it's a good movie. Definitely. Well, let's jump into uh, some news, gentlemen, and uh, one that uh, is uh, upsetting, but not really because, uh, you know, you know this was coming. In the world of reboots and remakes, here we go. Disney Plus, Home Alone Reboots. What do you guys think about this? Keenan Thompson and Chris Parnell. Wow. Well, it's it, that'll be interesting you know, to have Keenan Thompson playing uh, the Macaulay Culkin. You know, he's like fifty. <laughs> I got the feeling that they were probably going to be the the new um, Wet Bandits. Yeah, uh, it's just kind of the feeling I from the way that. Well, because they're aging. Either one's going to be the dad, and one's going to be one of the Wet right. Bandits. But um, yeah. That's what I was going with. I think uh, Parnell, maybe, uh, unless they they uh, really go, you know, progressive, and they have Keenan Thompson as the dad or something like that, and his kid is one that's left behind. 
and uh, they changed the uh, the ethnicity in the race of the uh, child left behind in this one. Um, that could be a possibility. And Chris Parnell could be the one of the sticky bandits. What do you guys think about that? Chris Parnell's a he's a very funny dude. Sticky bandits? Huh? I always thought they were the wet bandits. Were they called the sticky bandits? It's been forever well, since I've seen that fucking movie. <laughs> well, in, in one there were the wet bandits, and in the second one there were the sticky bandits. You you don't remember the uh, oh, okay. the sequel when the uh, they're out of prison and like the uh, um, the tall one what's his name um, Daniel Stern name. yeah Daniel Stern there we go Daniel he, Stern yeah, yeah he's walking around and uh, he has like tape on his hand and he sticks his hand uh and like a Santa Claus thing and it's like full of like money and stuff he's like what do you think Marv new name Sticky Bandits. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've only seen part two. I think, I think once, and that was like around oh. when it came out. I think I've seen part three more, just because than that. And I, I hate part three, but it's it's so bad that it's good. So like, I watch it to kind of laugh at it. Like fun fact, though, fun fact, though, part tape. three was written. Fun part three was written by John Hughes. Fun fact. No kidding. Well, you can make them all good, you know, every time, you know. <laughs> Well, I'm just saying he wrote that one though, but I'm just saying that like it it it's just funny that he wrote that one because he you yeah. know he was uh you know the 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 first two were so massively successful and then he wasn't involved, you know, wasn't involved too much with 3, but he did write the he did write the script. So wow. That's uh really I just wonder why they haven't done <laughs> I don't see why they haven't done anything new with the Honey I Shrunk or Honey I Blew Up franchise. Like that seems like something you'd figure Disney would be all over. That and Flubber, like for their streaming shit. Give it time. Just give it time. They'll do it. Oh, it's it, gonna happen yeah. eventually. I mean, right now, as things uh, said, gentlemen. Uh, before I get further into this story, you know, movie theaters across the country are closed, so uh, studios are in uh, in. Halt also when it comes to a lot of the production they're doing. Uh, movies are getting pushed back, as we know, production and everything is getting pushed back. Uh, one thing that I think might save some of this production is something that I just read recently also on another shoot where they're going to start doing, uh, I think it's what, Batwoman and maybe even Batman with uh, Pattinson. It's going to be more in enclosed sets instead of doing it like on location somewhere. Um, that's interesting because that's going to take it and make it look a little bit more claustrophobic, kind of like we had in the uh, 90s, early, you know, late 80s, early 90s with the Batman franchise, for example, the Tim Burton ones. One of the, you know, com- the, one of the, the complaints back then was how Gotham looked so claustrophobic and, like, it, you can tell it was the sound set. Uh, that's kind of like what they're going to start going back to. Now a green screen, CGI, you could, you know, definitely do more, make it more of a, of a living world. Uh, but we're going to definitely have to see movies rely more and more on that instead of just picking really cool locations to shoot from. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, might save some of the production, but I mean, as far as it goes, uh, there's not going to be a whole lot of new stuff coming out in the near future as it is. So in next year's probably going to be, you know, more of the same. If uh, this is a legit virus that's going around, you know, just because the year goes from 2020 to 2021 doesn't mean it's over. So, Well, the thing is, is I think that might end up helping some productions because if you yeah. got comic book movies, which, which one is the most atmospheric and just had the coolest cityscape you've ever seen? 
uh, Alex Poyas is the crow, right? That thing Correct, was entirely yeah. shot inside on the on a soundstage. And mm-hmm. man, like I think a Batman, if they kind of like built like a city like that for him to run around in, like that would be really neat looking. I think kind of miss that's, that. I mean, the, that's the open the idea. city yeah. thing that they do now is neat, but that soundstage from Crow or like the one from um, Dark City, another Alex Poyas movie, like man, mm-hmm. like, those could look really neat in, uh, in a Batman film. And you you know with technology also you could cheat. I mean you don't have to have an entire crew that spent all this money either. You could have if you want to do like flyovers on a city real quick or some you know like higher up shots. I mean you could use a drone with a like 4K like really badass mounted camera on it. Take it around, get a couple aerial shots. You know cut that into your film. I mean it's just how creative you want to get with the process on post production and how many aerial shots you need of like a, a city or something. Um, so, I mean, there's ways to cheat the uh, the whole system, but uh, definitely more enclosed sets, I think, will make it, cool, you know, a little cooler looking. And, you know, it's funny you bring up the uh, the crow because that those same sets were used for the Matrix. So, and the first Matrix was the one that really used those sets, and that's the most memorable one of that trilogy. Funny enough, right? Everybody, right. Yeah, yeah. Nobody really likes the sequels, so uh, go figure there. Uh, but it says here on uh, this uh, article, it says Keenan Thompson and Chris Parnell and Ali McKay, or Mackey, uh, have been cast in the upcoming Disney Plus Home Alone reboot. The first Home Alone movie was released in 1990, uh, starring a very young Macaulay Culkin as the lead role of Kevin McAllister. Uh, Kevin is an eight-year-old boy who is accidentally left home alone when his family goes on vacation and is forced into an all-out war with a pair of robbers trying to break in. The movie was a huge box office hit and led to a whole franchise, including Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, in which uh, Culkin reprised his role as Kevin. The Disney Plus reboot was first announced last year, I didn't even hear about that, by CEO uh, Bob Iger, who is uh, no longer the uh, CEO, but he has a more important job now, I think, at Disney, which is cleaning up Kathleen Kennedy's mess. Uh, however, the uh, reboot will feature all new characters and an all new storyline. The uh, new movie centers on a young boy named Max, who has stolen uh, a uh, porcelain doll, and a couple, uh, Pam and Hunter, uh, who is fighting with Max to get the doll back. So it's a, it's a switch from the original story. That's kind of cool. Uh, production for the Home Alone reboot, along with many other upcoming Disney films, have been halted due to the, of course, pandemic. Uh, now new information about the film cast has been revealed. And says the uh, Disney Insider reporter that Keenan Thompson again and Chris Parnell and Ali Mackey have joined the Disney cast, which... Uh, includes uh, Thompson playing Gavin Parnell, and he'll play the uncle, Uncle Stu, of little uh, Max. So, there you go, that's the characters, and uh, little Max, we, uh, I guess, haven't figured out who he's going to be yet. But, uh, I mean, do we really need another Home Alone after, you know, the trilogy, and then, like, whatever came on after that that was horrible? Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Yeah, all I can really see different now is like the kid after like <laughs> one of his like pranks goes off, 
he pulls out his phone and like Snapchats it really fast with the bandit like all busted up like <laughs> check it out. Like, so, like that that's what I expect to see out of this. Um, the fact that it's Disney Plus means that mm. yeah, they're probably gonna have like whatever kids famous off of whatever the that's so Raven or literally <laughs> yeah. kids show they have popping right now. Whatever kids on that, he's probably gonna play Max McAllister. Whatever, you know what I mean? Like, anybody that wants to ever watch Home Alone, like, I'm pretty sure they'll just watch Home Alone. But right. It's not going to hurt to try this. You know, they own the property, so they might as well, like, try to milk it, I guess. That's what Disney does. You know, it, it's sad, though, because, I mean, there's nothing sacred anymore. I mean, they already did so many sequels to this, and the first two are the only really good ones. It's like at some point, you know, you know what would be cool? Just, uh, it, it'd be cool if they re-released this somehow, like in a special cut, the original, you know, two Home Alone movies. Maybe a longer, bigger, bolder Home Alone cut, like the Snyder cut. I think that's, I think that's a good <laughs> idea. The idea of actually taking, uh... Stuff that was put on the cutting room floor and inserting it back into the movie and releasing a special edition and doing that. And I, I think that that would be um, probably more lucrative for any companies involved than trying to straight up reboot or remake everything. And I, I think that's the problem that a lot of these companies are going to realize when this Home Alone thing doesn't work out for them. Then they're going to be trying to look at other ways to milk the franchise, and maybe maybe your idea will be something that they might consider. Yeah, I would point. say um, a a good thing that they could maybe try is to Cobra Kai it and like actually mm. get Macaulay Culkin and all the Daniel Stern and them guys back, and like basically yeah. like I don't know, like Kevin sells them drugs now and he rips them <laughs> off, so they're trying to get into. Because, like, I can't think of anything else. <laughs> but that's a, that's a good idea. And they're Didn't trying they to break in to like get a stat. <laughs> Didn't they do something like that? Didn't they do, like, a, like a, I, I can't remember if it was, like, a poster or. If no, it was, it was like a, it was a commercial, YouTube I think, was it? Where, he, where Kevin McAllister was a, yeah. he was a, ooh, he repri- reprised the role of the character, but he was, like, a Uber driver or something. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he was trying to. He was telling somebody who he picked up the story of what happened to him when he was a kid. You are correct. <laughs> I remember seeing that. Yeah, uh, they did something similar with ET a while back. Oh, the the ET thing was actually very tasteful and very well done. Yeah. I'm surprised it came out as nice as it did. Yeah, uh, I was. Uh, you know, once I saw that, I was like, "Man, why didn't they uh, make a whole movie out of this? This would have been epic." I, yeah, and they probably realized that after they made it, like, like you stupid, <laughs> stupid people. We could have turned around and made, yeah, we could have, we yeah. could have made billions, billions of dollars off of this, and you blow your load in a in a Comcast commercial. I mean, really? Yeah. What's the point of that? You know, that, but I mean, that it, no it really makes it really makes you like sad and mad at Disney at the same time. I and mean, we still haven't got that third Tron movie. But they can yeah. reboot fucking Home Alone. Well, allegedly they are making their third Tron movie, and they're getting the same director who did the second Tron movie. Yeah, but they've been saying for that real? for the last five years. No, but there was a recent article, I think, that came out a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It was recent information. I think it was like a Hollywood reporter or Variety or something like that. So I mean, the end of Tron 2 sets it up perfectly for a third one. I don't know why the hell they haven't rushed in on that 
Well, the second one didn't do as good as they thought, but it, it, it did decent. But they wanted it had the same problem as John Carter. They were expecting it to like be a billion dollar movie, and it made I don't know like four hundred thousand or something. It made its money no. back, but not enough to make more than that. Four hundred thousand. Oh, you mean the self the self sabotaging John Carter movie that Bob Iger deliberately sabotaged so he could get. Uh, so he could uh, negotiate with George Lucas on the rights to Star Wars. Okay. Well, it's yeah. it's one of the best movies they've ever made, and like nobody went and saw it. Yeah, That's because they saying. they mismarketed it on purpose. I mean, they should have. It should have been called John Carter of Mars, Warlord of Mars. That's what it should have been called. Yeah. And instead, they just called it John Carter. And nobody went to see it. They didn't market it. They totally swept it under the rug so that Iger could yeah. get could get George Lucas enticed to come back and come and uh, give up the rights to Star Wars. Look, if 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 that movie, if they didn't, if Disney didn't have Star Wars, you better believe they would have marketed the hell out of John Carter because it, you know, it was it was great, and that's where yeah. the inspiration for a lot of Star Wars stuff came from. So, oh yeah. I mean, you know, I you know, I feel like that movie is is too good to have received the fate that it got, and for what? For a crappy Disney trilogy that we didn't that that nobody really can honestly say that they truly one hundred percent liked or put it on the same level as the previous films. You know what's crazy though? I I think part of the issue also with the marketing of John Carter had to do with the the portion of Mars. Uh, because, I mean, we've seen over the last 20 years how many movies have had the name Mars on it, and they all flop. And I think Disney was aware of that also, and they are like, okay, we can't put that in there. But there's other things you could have called it with, you know, that you don't have to put the of Mars on there, which fans would have known what you're talking about. When you just call it John Carter, people thought it was like a, a remake or a sequel to Coach Carter with Sam Jackson. Yeah, like, a lot of folks I, were confused, yeah, you know? Yeah, it's about... About Coach Carter's kid or what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like Creed? <laughs> He's the new coach. His name is John Carter. He's going to get white suburban kids, and he's going to teach them how to play basketball. John Carter of New Hampshire. <laughs> hey, guys, we're going to play some basketball. That's why I say I think it was compl- it was completely deliberate on the part of Bob Iger because he wanted a negotiation tactic with with George Lucas. If he would have if they would have hyped up John Carter the way they were supposed to, then in the negotiations, George Lucas would have said, "Well, wait a minute, aren't you doing the, you know, you're doing the those John Carter of Mars novels now, aren't I? I mean, what do you need Star Wars for?" Like like it's 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 like you, you know, you figure the amount of marketing that went into that movie was nothing at all compared to what Disney usually does for a big movie, especially something as big and epic as that as that storyline. So it, again, it was it was self sabotage. It's the only thing that makes sense. I mean, yeah. you're looking at posters that were just red posters with the name, you know, plain red posters with the name John Carter on it. What they're does, pretty what does sweet that look- represent? What does that? They were pretty sweet. Yeah, but they were pretty sweet looking posters, though. <laughs> They never I mean, seem look, to really care back. about what they have 
at their disposal. I mean, like this Home Alone thing is a perfect representation of that. Why? Are, yeah. Why did they spend money to buy that property to reboot when they could have used something that they own that people love, like the Mighty Ducks? That would be cool. <laughs> if they actually get like that dude to love to be on Dawson's Creek. Emilio. Yeah, the kid that played Charlie who grew up to be on Dawson's Creek. If he comes back and he's the coach in the new one, that could work. That could get a lot of people my age to even check it out. You know what I mean? But, yeah, no, they're just going to poop out a bad home alone for millennials like or for Zoomers, even worse. Yeah, I'm, I'm cool. I'm cool. Yeah, but the thing is you, you can't have the Mighty Ducks without Emilio. Well, he'll definitely you know. show up in there, man. But, like, yeah, the, the main coach guy that could get that dude that grew up to be in Dawson's Creek and shit. And, like, yeah, and, like, it, it would it would work. And they could even about maybe even make it a TV show. You know, Johnny, you're kind of talking shit. about that now. And, and I swear I could totally see them doing some, something like that. At some point, they're going to be – they're going to keep going to the well with stuff that they – you know, stuff that they just acquired. And then finally they're going to be like, oh, yeah. Let's do the let's do the Mighty Ducks, you know, with that Dawson kid, Dawson Creek kid, and let's do this, and, and, and we can we can throw Emilio in there too. I can see the meeting shaping out just exactly the way you just described it right now. It's just it's something I'm visualizing right now as we speak, and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, they're gonna they're gonna do that because it's, they're they're well and. No, but not that. Not just that. When it comes to like sports properties and stuff like that, that's easy to like you know reboot or or oh, bring yeah. back twenty years, thirty years later because some of those actors are still alive. You can just pinpoint, like you said, to uh, you know the kid from uh, Fringe and uh, Dawson's Creek, and he has he actually has a name by the way, which I I forgot now. Joshua Jackson or Joshua George? Josh something Jackson, like yeah, something like that. Yeah, he, and he's no relation to Michael. Uh, but yes, Josh, ja- yeah, Joshua Jackson, I think it's his name or something. But uh, anyway, they could you know pinpoint it on him. The fat kid was in there. He's funny. Also, he's still is he alive? The fat kid or? Did he had? I'm know, pretty sure. Yeah, I figured if but, he was dead, there'd be a bunch of people on YouTube say, like making. Like, remember that kid from Mighty Ducks, isn't it, said he's dead videos? Yeah, but uh, they bring back, uh, you know, at least in the cameo, uh, maybe as a, you know, like a mentor or an older coach, you have to have Emilio in there somewhere. Like, that would be kind of cool if, like, they have a Zen moment where Josh Jackson goes and, like, seeks him out for advice. And he finds him, like, he's living, like, remember in Revenge of the Nerds uh, 2, Nerds in Paradise, when Burger goes and meets the old Asian guy? And he sits with him, he's like, Master. Yeah. And they have like a Zen moment like that with uh, Emilio Estevez. And he's the new Zen master of yeah. the Mighty Ducks. Does Emilio Estevez look <laughs> that bad now to where they'd have to have a Zen moment like that? Because he's <laughs> be an older coach. I mean, I, I don't. No, I mean, I don't think he looks. need for that type of scene. I mean, he's not... Emilio Estevez isn't ancient, is he? Is he like 96 years old? I mean. No, 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 no. But I mean, you can always make him up and say that he fell off the wagon, became an alcoholic, and he's like, you know, now some drunken guy at a motel and just make it funny. You know, I don't know. Just just an idea. You don't have to look like that to actually, you know, get made up of that. I mean, even the, I mean even the, like, I, I'm, thinking they, I'm thinking they might as well go the. Uh, you know the McBride role with him, and just have him be some, just cast anybody in that part as as the aging version of Emilio Estevez's character. <laughs> I mean, I mean it's 
Kevin McBride. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Kenny well, Powers. Like, you know the Crocodile Dundee sequel that everybody wanted after we saw that uh that uh you know traveling commercial in the Super Bowl where they wasted money on something that would have been a completely epic story that they could have did for a film that an people would have saw. Film. Yeah. yeah. Something yeah. people actually would have paid to go see they ruined by making some stupid commercial for airlines. I mean Yeah. I th- actually, I think it was, wasn't it for what was it? it was for like a cruise line, wasn't it? Yeah. Unbelievable. That's what it was for. Yeah. I mean, and, and I again, still, I still get mad when I think about it because it, because it makes no yep. sense. The rumors about it were, there were rumors swirling around. Epic. And every, I remember we even talked about it on here. We talked about it and it was like, yeah, they're going to do, no, they're going to do a movie. It's, it's going <laughs> to be a film. And what did it turn out to be? I mean. And they did, but then they didn't. They do the same thing for uh, for uh, Ferris Bueller. It was like a Hertz commercial. Yeah, that's that, that's the thing. Now I don't know why they waste because they're wasting good money, and a lot of these projects could have cost them like nearly nothing to to make a full two hour movie. But so the, I don't. But the ET thing for Xfinity was the was the yeah. biggest offense. Was the worst offender of them all because yeah. in that. I think it was like four minutes, and it's like in that four-minute, you know, thing that they did, they told a complete story that they could have flushed out in, in, into like a two-hour film, and they could have made billions of dollars off of it. Could you imagine an E.T. Returns to Earth movie or something like that? To visit what have they called Elliot? E.T. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, E.T. Returns, that's it. You you made that movie and put it in the holiday season? That is guaranteed to be the number one movie of all times. Guarantee. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's uh, there's easy, no debating that. Easy. There's no debating that. Easy. It, it it takes it takes everything, especially when you get getting you can get the principal actors from the original film, the surviving principal actors to come back and be in the movie and have. I, I it boggles the mind how how stupid they are because that yeah. Xfinity thing that they did could not have been cheap. No, no. I mean, they spent at least. Uh, you know, minimal eight ten million, minimal at least, at least, yeah, yeah. at least minimal, uh, and that's because they they get overcharged for special effects, and because you know they go to some studio that can make it look super super nice, which is great, and you want that for a film. But if you're gonna spend ten million on a four minute commercial, spend thirty fifty million and make a whole two hour movie. You know, a lot of the stuff that you can do on Earth, location shots, they don't cost a, a whole lot of money these days. And again, we have all this technology. Put it to use. That's what it's there for. You know, I, I just don't understand it. It's uh, ridiculous. And uh, you know, now we're you know we're facing a, you know pushback with the studios. Uh, you know, are in lockdown. You know, so they don't know when they're going to get stuff. You know done so imagine if they would have actually done an et production when they did that video and they would have had it like ready to release now you would have something to put out there a two-hour cut of something like this uh so it would have been awesome to you know be able to at least get that but it isn't you know gonna happen now yeah it would have been and, absolutely fantastic and and the and the way that that whole thing was set up it was set up like a feature film, it was set up to sow the seeds of doing a movie, yep. just to tease you and say, "Ah, oh, in another timeline, 
huh, you idiots actually got that movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks a lot. In another space and time. Uh, let's move on to another story here. I, I just dropped in a link here to you guys can check this out. Interestingly enough, uh, sticking to the world of Disney and Star Wars here, Alden Eichenreich, who played young Han in Han Solo, the movie Solo, a Star Wars story, has yet to uh, see the last uh, of the uh, franchise trilogy, The Rise of the Skywalkers, or as we uh, in the fandom call it, The Death of the Trilogy. Because, you know, there's a lot of crying after that movie ended, and it wasn't for good tears. But Alden Eichenreich has yet to see the movie, and uh, said the uh, Solo was Disney's second attempt at a Star Wars spinoff, and sought to tell the origin story, of course, of the lovable rogue Han Solo. And Eisenreich uh, scored a uh, highly coveted role of young Han. And fans and critics were fairly impressed... By his performance, and were they? Uh, were they though? Well. Were they though? <laughs> were they really though? Come on now. <laughs> this seems like a very biased uh, post here, uh, gentlemen. Yeah, fake, what do you think? Yeah, fake news right there, obviously. Yeah, fake news. Nobody, nobody yes, yeah. who I know who's a Star Wars fan has anything real positive to say about that movie. Although I must say, there's one guy I know in real life who absolutely loved the movie and thinks it's. Thinks it's the perfect a perfect Star Wars movie, and I and I can't understand for the life of me why. But well, we got medication for people like that. You know, it's a good doctor. They can go see. They'll they'll prescribe something. Maybe a padded room. Uh, you know, a, stra- yeah. a straight jacket. Something. <laughs> well, maybe you know. Yeah, maybe like a, a good a good you know uh, therapist psychologist. Like maybe volume or something might help him out a little bit. Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, it's just sadly, sadly, uh, these people. Uh, who like this movie are actually still around. Uh, it says, however, the Solo ended up being the biggest underperforming financially feature film in the entire franchise of Star Wars. Uh, but it says, yeah, the plans for Eichenreich's uh, Han has, uh, well, so far fallen on the wayside because the movie sucked and bombed. But uh, since then, Lucasfilm hasn't made any additional Star Wars spinoffs. Thought they uh, do continue to expand the franchise with several Disney shows, like we mentioned earlier, and a couple of cartoons coming up. But it continues saying, in fact, Star Wars is taking a break from the movies for a little bit. No shit, 2020, coronavirus. He says uh, 2020 will be the first year in, since 2015 without a Star Wars movie. Uh, as last December's Rise of Skywalker wrapped up, both the Skywalker saga... Right, and uh, Disney's sequel trilogy. You see how they put that? Disney's sequel trilogy, much like yeah, because Disney's... the rumors about it possibly getting retconned are probably more true than people realize. Oh yeah, uh, much like Disney's previous Star Wars movies, The Rise of Skywalker has met with extremely mixed response from the fans. While some were satisfied with how the story wrapped up. Uh, there's like three people that were satisfied. Others were displeased with the uh, with certain elements, such as the return of Emperor Palpatine. Were displeased, you think? <laughs> yeah, uh, in the conclusion of various storylines. Now, you guys know that I called the Emperor Palpatine what, like what, two years ago? I was saying, 
That's the only way they could continue uh, in uh, this uh, franchise, but it could only be done a certain way, and they butchered it. Yeah, um, I, I yeah. mean, like I would totally concede that point to you, but um, you didn't say anything about him having a mysterious swamp full of star destroyers. So no, because I'm not, I'm not giving yeah. you that point. No, <laughs> I, I I don't want that point either because that's the, that's part of the part they butchered because that make no that makes no sense. Rise from the oceans, all these star destroyers. Rise. What the fuck are they doing under the ocean to begin with? One thing I will say about Rise of Skywalker, one positive monochrome of respect I will give it is it looked really good visually. Well, that, you're going to get that in every, uh, of these, every one of these movies. I mean, there's not going to be one film yeah, that's, that's going to look saying. shitty. There's nothing unique you know? about it when you say that because you're just saying that it, it looks good. It, it does, but yeah, yeah. it's not. there's not much else you can say, though. But you can even say that about Solo. That had some like really beautiful shots in there. But when you put it together as a movie, it's... I agree with that. I don't really like the way that yeah. Solo was shot, to be honest yeah. with you. Whereas, Solo kind of where... looked like one of those. It looked like one of those Marvel movies. It just seemed like it had like that washed color palette, like one of those have. It did have them, but some of like the sh- the, the train movie. shots were kind of cool. Like there was there was a few shots in there were pretty cool. You know, Rise of Skywalker definitely had some grandiose shots. Whether they whether the the, the you know the story problems not not being included in that, but just how it looked. There were some actual really great shots in that movie where it actually looked breathtaking and very, very appealing. But that's just from a visual point of view. Yeah, no, I'll uh, concede to that. Uh, it says here in a new profile with Esquire, uh, timed for a debut of the new Peacock series, Brave New World. I can like uh, touched upon his experience as Han Solo saying, man, it was shitty. Fans shitted on me all day long on the Internet. I just couldn't take it. So I bitched on and I said, I'll never do it again. No, that's not what he said. He said, uh, well, he doesn't know if there's any real future for his Han. Let me just save everybody the rest of the uh, the issue here. There's no future for Iken Reich's Han Solo. None. Uh, there was him, a him bit of... His, and him and his receding hairline can definitely yes. safely <laughs> move on to other projects. Correct. Uh, which is ironic because he's older than Harrison Ford played uh, when he played Han Solo at this point. So he can't play young Han Solo anymore when he's older. You feel me? Makes no sense. Uh, that's another... Kathleen Kennedy uh, mistake. Well, that and that's Lord of Miller because they really wanted uh, this guy. We've talked about that before. They wanted I can like, and then he snitched on them, got them fired, and what goes around comes around, right, guys? It's, it's, it's really amazing the way karma works in that situation. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, ooh, we gotta have I can like, and he's like, God, oh, these guys suck. And next thing you know, like they canceled each other out. That's how cancel uh, culture works now, right? Huh. I think I think if anybody really wanted him to play Han Solo again, there would literally be um, like a movement. We'd all know at least one guy like Zod Rider that would be bitching and like fucking <laughs> causing a fuss constantly because they needed their goddamn Eichenreich Han Solo back. And I don't see any of it. So it like he would need that kind of push, maybe even harder because like um, we could say a lot of things about, like, the Snyder DC films, they did not flop as fucking hard as Solo did, man. Like, 
they, they were they all made their money back and stuff like that so like yeah. you can see how like they um it was plausible for the Snyder Cut guys to get it I don't know if like anybody would be like hey come on Disney, remember that one movie that you completely just like ate almost a billion dollars on? Yeah, make more of that, please. There is a small movement for it. There is a small movement for Very uh, small. Soul. It's a movement. It's a small movement they're trying to do. They're trying to get make solo, and their the hashtag, uh, I, I believe, is make solo too. But that'll yeah. never happen. And no. They there's there's just not enough of them. There's not. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. No. That's Take a, it, it's going to take a lot more than just than just a small handful of people to make to make that happen because that's the that's the movie where hashtag Disney lost solo lost money so yeah yeah, yeah no no check check this yeah, out oh go ahead Johnny go ahead go, go ahead go ahead I was going to say yeah I was going to say because like yeah all us nerds like we at least knew one maybe three um, Snyder cut fans that were always on about it and yeah i never ran across one of these um make solo two people so yeah i'm gonna say that like if there there is a movement yeah. they are not vocal no they've missed me out completely because i and even in my personal life i don't know one person that actually likes the uh, solo movie um but check this out this is funny that he told his butt hurt says eisenreich Hasn't seen Rise of Skywalker, and he didn't even know the name of the Mandalorian on Disney Plus, and he has not seen the series Mandalorian. He's not or a Star Sto- Wars fan. He's not he's a Star Wars, Wars fan, Wars. exactly. Freak. That's what he is. He's not a Star Wars fan. He's just an actor who took the role because yep. he thought it was going to be good for his career. Ha <laughs> ha! Boy, was he wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now he said that uh, for uh, for all it's worth. Uh, the plan was not to be a solo uh, project, just one solo movie. The plan was to have him in a trilogy, which, again, is not going to happen. Uh, now, of course, they've uh, put aside the Ewan McGregor trilogy, and they're going to probably develop that into a series. Uh, but it's funny to see in here uh, the guy who they picked to uh, play young Han Solo is so bitter and butthurt that he has not even paid attention to anything going on positive in Star Wars and not been vocal uh, in a positive way to see if maybe he can win over the fans or maybe he can win over the studios or maybe there could be a chance to come back to a, a big project like that. doesn't care. That tells me that the fans who uh, protested against his casting were 100% correct. And uh, the fact that he is no longer going to be involved... It's probably for the best. Han Solo is a character that, like, like I said, should not have had a, a a movie to begin with. He is right where he belongs in A New Hope. That's the first time we meet him. That's the first time we should meet him. Once you know a backstory to a character like that, it kind of like ruins the entire process of like meeting him for the first time, you know. And uh, with that they're said, gonna, gentlemen, they're gonna they're gonna bury that movie the same way they bury they tried to bury the holiday special. Yep. Well, at least the well, holiday well, special was, was goofy and fun. You know, like, this is just, you know, ridiculous, this movie. There is neat things they could have did with him, though. Like, there's a book that I read when I was a little kid. I still own it. It's called Han Solo at Star's End, which is basically about I him kind of book. right before New Hope. And, and um, yeah, they could have did something like that, and it could have worked. It was just about him and Chewie. Didn't really tie in too much with the Empire or any of that stuff. It, it had its own story that was, like, Han Solo-centric. 
And I think if they tried that instead of being like, hey, guys, look, it's the Millennium Falcon. Hey, guys, look, it's Lando when he was young. Hey, guys. You know, like that's where they really shot themselves in the foot is trying to overdo the nostalgia overload for the damn thing. Yeah. That and a gross miscalculation of how much the fans wanted to see this uh, thing because I think that's where it hurt them the most. They really thought the fans were going to back a Han Solo project like 100%, and they just didn't understand that we, the fans, kind of understand that there's some things are just best left to the imagination. And yeah, when you guys maybe, announced the film even before yeah. casting, and everyone was like, I don't know, man, don't yeah. do this right now. You, you should have maybe not have carried forward, but they just kept pushing it full stream, even though at every step the fans were just kind of like, yeah, dude, we're not feeling it, though. Like, like back burner that shit until, you know, like we don't have cool ideas that, in our minds of what you could possibly do. Injury, they don't even cast the guy that Harrison Ford was campaigning for to play young Han Solo. I, that's yeah. a, I don't understand. How do you not take the advice of Harrison Ford who played the character for all that time. The only actor who would have more insight into who should play the character. Who would know him better than Han Solo himself, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> you would think they'll be smarter than that. But... Nobody, it's a movie nobody wanted, and then they couldn't even do us that one small favor and make sure they cast somebody who actually fit the part. It, it's, it makes it, it's, just like with, it's just like with Sonic the Hedgehog. If Ron Howard would have would have came in and swapped out Iken Iron whatever his name is for for uh, the guy I that actually like. looks like that actually looks like Harrison Ford that Harrison Ford actually wanted in the role. I bet you we'd be having a different conversation right now because people would have taken it more serious if yep. they could actually see Han Solo in the character that he played. And bringing on board right now a gentleman who is uh, legendary when it comes to the uh, world of comics, when it comes to the world of the Twilight Zone, the one, the only, Mr. Arlen Schumer. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Boy, I'm legendary. <laughs> I thought I was only a legend in my own mind, to use a popular cliché. But, I mean, man, you make me sound like I'm uh, I'm a somebody. That's what I try to do. I, I like, you know, I'm the type of person I like to bring people up in life instead of, you know, like, hey, Arlen, what's up, buddy? I know, but meanwhile, you know, I feel like, <laughs> why do I feel like a loser with a one-way ticket to Palookaville? No. I don't know if anybody <laughs> recognizes where I'm getting that quote from. But I, that's, I think that's before from, my time. That's before my time. Does anybody know that quote listening in? It's Harlan uh... Brando backseat line <laughs> in, in on the waterfront where he goes, you were my big brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me. I could have been a contender instead of a, one, a loser with a one-way ticket to Palookaville. Could have been a contender. Very bad Marlon Brando. Yes, yeah. Now I know where that's from. Listen, I'm already dropping knowledge on you, and we haven't even gotten started. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's why you're an award-winning comic book style illustrator uh, for advertising your, you know, editorial market. Uh, you, you've done everything. You're a visionary. You're a historian. You're a legend. Like I said, you're an icon, and you know stuff about Marlon Brando, which the rest of us are like, yeah, that's before our time. And yet, I know nothing. That's that's normally what I say in my life. I know a lot, but I know absolutely nothing. By the way, I love your background. Thanks, man. That is awesome. What do you think, Johnny? 
You want to go in there one yeah. day and just snatch a couple of those pictures? For real? Yeah, no, I might even get Dewey <laughs> to do me a commission or something. Like, I was looking at his art before the show, and it's clean. It's really cool. Um, I, too, am, like, really, really into comics. I devote, like, all my time to it. I do another podcast where I recommend lesser-known books, and I do the same on YouTube. And, um, yeah, it's kind of the lot in life for us guys that have, like, interest in the, the weird, smaller things. Um, if you're not talking about, like, Batman or Spider-Man all the time as a comic book, like, enthusiast, you're not going to catch too, too many ears too often. But the ones you do catch are um, super excited about anything you could bring to them, though, which is I always find rewarding personally. How about you, Mr. Schumer? Well, first of all, call me Arlen, Johnny. Second of all, <laughs> what you just defined is exactly how comic book fandom grew yeah. from the first convention in New York City in 1964 that Steve Ditko attended, the only time he ever attended a convention, in a tiny little nothing hotel on the ground floor. Um, and the point is, is we only knew each other back then in those days through the letters columns of the DC and Marvel comics. And, you know, no, you know, a lot of comic book fans didn't know anybody even amongst their friends that read comics. If it wasn't yeah. for my older brother, Steve, a year and a half older than me, who I grew up with and I'm still am close with, that we came out of the same pop culture bullion base of comics and television and James Bond and, you know, all the pop culture of the 60s. But, I mean, if it wasn't for him, I've got to stop and think if any of my friends in school or the, the friends I, I played sports with after school as a kid, none of them were into comics. So it's like comics were this very kind of solitary thing, all male. They're, you know, we wanted girls in comics, and maybe there were, but I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it was. That's it was a changed guy now. Thing. It was a guy That's changed thing. now, like well, big time. The movies, yeah. which are a mainstream um, attraction, you know, date night, people go to movies. It's a male female thing. You're yeah. going to get. Not that there weren't women in comics before that, but, you know, the point is, is the movies are what brought in the present day audience. When you go to a comic convention. Oh, Sounds like a thing of the past, comic convention. Remember those yeah. gatherings? Remember way, those? Way back in 2019. Remember 2019? <laughs> okay, but the point is, is now you go in and and it's, you know, it, it may be more women than men. But the point yeah, is, yeah. is the stuff we dreamed about, Angel and Johnny, when, when we were 10 years old, that if Hollywood took comics seriously, not mm -hmm. treated them campily like the Batman TV show, which we hated, Mm -hmm. Because it's Batman like a camp clown. We didn't even yep. know the word camp back then. We just knew they were making fun of Batman. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is, we knew because we read the great Jack Kirby comics. We read the great superhero comics back then that that tackled some serious issues that reflected what was happening. I mean, that's what I lecture about, how the comics reflected what was happening in the culture. But we knew that as 10-year-olds. And we knew that these stories were great. How could you not read... The Fantastic Four Galactus Silver Surfer trilogy by Jack Kirby, and not in your mind see that as the greatest movie ever made. Yes. And here we are, almost 60 years later, and we're finally going to get two movies based on Jack Kirby. Not only the New Gods, the stuff he did for DC when he left Marvel in 1970, but we're going to get the Eternals as well. So the excuse me. The point is, is we Bless knew. You. We knew when, when I was 10 years old, 12 years old, that if 
Hollywood took superheroes seriously, they would be great films. Gee, it only took about 40 years, but, you know... That and how many great- Fantastic Four, like, misfires that they had over the years? Like, what, three? Four Fantastic Four movies before they yeah, like, well... about four Fantastic Four If you had told people of my generation that one day there would be a, a, a TV show based on a superhero every night of the week, and there would be a superhero-based movie in the theaters every other week, too. I would, my generation would have said, like, what is that, the bizarro world? You know, we never <laughs> yeah. could have imagined yeah. that. But listen, back when I was a kid, I know this sounds like the equivalent of, you know, we used to walk to school five miles, you know, with no shoes. In the snow. Back when I was a kid, my brother and I would stay up late at night in our beds when we went to sleep in our in our little um, garden apartment bedroom. And we would, wouldn't it be great if one day there were stores that just sold comics? So, you know, we're living in a golden age now of comics with stores, with the archive reprint editions. You know, those IDW artist editions, those facsimile reprints? It's like, yeah, I got you know, I was a tons kid, of the Ninja Turtles ones. Yeah, if we had had that yes. when I was a kid, we would have died. So it's like, all of the, you know, the complete peanuts and those beautiful hardcovers by Fantagraphics. I grew up reading those peanut paperback books, you know, so we're really living in a golden age. But I'm personally, as an historian, trying to keep the silver age of comics alive, mm. which is essentially the 60s. But it's the foundation upon which everything we're talking about now that's happening all the characters they've made movies and TV shows out of all come out of that era. Right. And that's the era. For instance, The Flash is on television. But who remembers the artist Carmine Infantino mm-hmm. who initiated the red-suited Flash? And by the way, only in the oddball world of comics would a guy named Carmine, which is the color red, end up becoming totally identified with the ultimate red-suited superhero. Yeah. Carmine. Carmine! <laughs> okay, so you can't make that up is what I'm saying. But, so, for instance, so I'm doing a webinar coming up in August on Carmine Infantino. Uh, you know... I'll be there for that one. Guaranteed. You better be. I'm, you a, better I'm be a big Flash fan, one. sir. The one I'm doing I, next week on Bruce Springsteen. Come on. That's the one I was going to plug a little bit later on, on July 22nd. Yep, you have you that one coming up. you talk about it, I'm, I'm ready, Teddy. Yeah, we're going to definitely hit that up in a minute here because I'm very interested in that. I'm a, I'm a big Springsteen fan. I'm a, I'm a Mr. I, I'm born in the USA, even though I was born in Cuba. Uh, you've met your match, 007. <laughs> By the way, I'm doing a, a webinar on James Bond at the end of July after Bruce. Cool. Well, we can definitely get into that also. What, James, Bo- what J- James Bond films are you going to cover in your webinar? How far well, are you going to go? Yeah. Well, of my How webinar is... And this should tell you what it is. It's called the Sean Connery James Bond Canon oh, yes. first yes. four films. I don't Sean even include your advice. I consider that not canon. I believe the first four films, ironically, like the the amount of the Gospels, there are four foundation mm-hmm. films that every other Bond film after that comes out of one way or the other. But those four films. Coincidentally, also, of course, Connery's greatest outings as Bond. Yeah. But yeah. those four films as a canon 
Each film is unique unto itself. Each film has flaws. None of neither film is perfect, and yet you can't say like people say, "Oh, Goldfinger is the greatest Bond film," or whatever. I like From Rush with Love. That's truest to the Ian Fleming thing. I'm going to try to point out in my webinar when I sort of recapitulate each of the four films in a two and a half hour webinar. So it's like a live documentary that I'll be presenting in the moment when I do the webinar in visuals and in my verbal backup. But I'll basically be making a case that each film has something the other films do not. You can even start with the very first film, Dr. No. Mm. You know, you know, the, the last 40 minutes of the film, when he lands on Dr. No's, you know, underground sea fortress, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, this 1962 film, at the beginning of the 60s, before they became the 60s, all of a sudden, we get the template, the blueprint, for the modern action film. Yeah, yeah. In the yeah. last 40 minutes of Dr. No, we get the erudite villain, Dr. No, which, by the way, maybe the, the best underrated, everybody says Goldfinger, but, you know, Dr. No set the tone. Mm-hmm. And by the way, as a Twilight Zone fan and a scholar, I've done works on the Twilight Zone as well. How do you think Joseph Wiseman got the role to play Dr. No? Yeah, yeah. a lot of people got discovered from the Twilight Zone. Well, um, so Shatner Twilight was on there was, also. Yeah. He was in a Twilight Zone episode a year before mm-hmm. they made Dr. No. Yeah. And he plays a wealthy, erudite megalomaniac mm-hmm. in New York City that builds a bomb shelter underground <laughs> in order to play a bizarre practical joke on the people he felt wronged him in life. But when uh, you yes. watch this episode, yep. he's got... You know, the ascot. He's got the futuristic uh, um, design of the uh, bunker, you know, down on you know, the finest of everything. He speaks in that articulate Bond villain manner. But what I'm trying to basically say is Rod Serling is the uncredited creator of the Bond villain because the guy he creates in this episode called One More Paul Bearer from mm-hmm. 1961, season three, Starring Joseph Wiseman as this areotype New York intellectual, a feet snob who wants to wrong wrongs. Basically, you watch that and then you put on Dr. No, and you will basically, I guarantee you, somebody from the Bond camp, when they were casting Dr. No, I mean, the Twilight Zone was a popular show. There are fans. Yeah, yeah, there are fans. I guarantee you, they say. <laughs> yeah. That's our Dr. No, but Serling never gets the grip. But those are the kind of connections I make between all of the pop culture loves, whether it's comics, Bruce Springsteen, Twilight Zone, movies. You know, there are these sort of invisible connections and uh, six degrees of uh, Kevin Bacon type. Um, well, what do you think of uh, Daniel Craig and his run as uh, Bond? <laughs> Didn't like it? <laughs> Listen, here's the problem. To me, Connery, I don't think there's ever been a film actor so closely identified with a single role. I mean, even Humphrey Bogart played different roles, even though he was the dark-haired, leading, tough guy man before Connery in the movies. You know, if you notice, 
Bogart's career ends and peters out, just mm-hmm. Connery begins. But he was like he was like Humphrey Bogart, but with the athleticism of Burt Lancaster or Kirk Douglas. He could move. Yeah. He could move as gracefully as, you know, when you see Burt Lancaster in some of these movies. But he mm-hmm. was the dark-haired Humphrey Bogart tough guy with the cigarette. Yeah, so, no, you're right. And, yeah. You know, and Humphrey Bogart was American. He was British. So mm-hmm. the point is, is that's what Connery brought to the role. Therefore, I don't accept other Bonds. To me, there are other movies. They, there are other, you know, Roger Moore was the saint. To me, all of his so-called Bond movies are I like the saint. Yes, I agree with character, that. Bond, yeah. say, if you read Ian Fleming's description, Connery, even though Ian Fleming at first didn't like Connery's casting, mm-hmm. when you actually read his own words, he said dark-haired with a cruel mouth. And I, I forget, there was some other description. But when you read that, that little verbal description by Fleming, that's Connery. Yeah, yeah. So if I, if no, I'm you, making a case, I'm basically saying, you know, the only other Bond I liked because he was the most Connery-like was Dalton. Yes. movies he made. Even yes. though the movies themselves, you know, they weren't that great. They look a little dated and tawdry-looking. But the point is, is he was the right man at the wrong time. Yes. Um, but the bottom line is, this has nothing to do with Craig as an actor. But, you know, to me... Craig looks like a pug, if you know what the definition of a pug <laughs> is. Yeah. You know, he's got the cauliflower ears, and he looks like he's been beaten up too many times. And when he when he wears a tux, he looks like he's crashing the party. Yeah. That's a bond to me. So my point is I wish the filmmakers had the balls to basically say, this is a movie about Joe Schmoe, secret agent. Or this is a movie, you know, this. the point is, is there's only one bond. It's Connery, and of the Connery films, come to my webinar where I make a case and basically show you why the first four films are, that's the James Bond canon as far as I'm concerned. So, who, so like, in, yep. in that, with that all being said, yes. as Connery being being uh, the definitive take on the character, yes. if, if, if the movie studio came to you tomorrow and said, we have to make this James Bond movie. We have to make a make it. It ha- we have to put it out. We've got to reboot it. Who would you cast in a Connery-like rendition of the role? Mm. Well, I wouldn't cast any name actor. I would find somebody. Remember that movie a couple of years ago that won the Academy Award called The Actor? Yes. Okay. You know the guy that played the, the male lead role? He's a French actor, I think. The mm. point is... is no. Okay, but whoever he is, whatever the name of that <laughs> actor was, he was playing a Bond-like character in that movie. And I think he's done other things where he plays, it's like he's got a little bit of the physical build. He looks a little like Connery, but he has the Connery je ne sais quoi down pat. And you've Dalton had that. that. So the point yeah. is, is, I believe... You know, it's funny. Quentin Tarantino claims, this is from years ago, that he mm-hmm. wanted to do a Bond movie set in the 1960s. Like, yeah. in other words, take one step back with irony and an artistic bent and kind of do a deconstruction of Bond. 
you know, I always wanted to do a music They should have done with Casino Royale. That's what they should have done with Casino Royale. Well, I like Daniel Cook a little bit more than you do. Uh, but if looking back retrospectively, 2020, they should have done a 1960-ish version of Casino Royale with a more of a Sean Connery kind of bond. That yeah, would have been like, the best it. way to go. Daniel Craig, this is what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying, with a more like Sean Connery type of actor, like, you know, right, in that mold. If you're going to do that, like I said, you're asking me, what would I do if, 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 if the movie company came to me and yes. offered me $200 million and gave me an A-list <laughs> crew and said, Arlen, make whatever Bond movie you want, what would I do? Is that really the question? So you're talking about, yeah, you're talking <laughs> about George Valentine from the act, from... From the artist or the act? Uh, what what movie? It's what called was the movie. It won the the movie's called the actor. Like five years ago, wasn't that called the the artist? It was called no. the, the artist. movie. The artist. The artist. Yeah, you're talking about. What's the name of the male lead in that movie? That actor is is okay, like yeah, yeah. A, it's Gene, like doing a Connery homage. In his yeah, whole he kind of is like he's kind of like Sean Connery. He yes. looks kind of like Sean Connery a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Uh, John, who's like him? Connery the got the role in 1962 because Saltzman and Broccoli watched him walk across the parking lot outside their offices, and they said he moved like a cat. Now, you got to remember, Connery was a Mr. Universe uh, finalist or something. He was a bodybuilder. Not that he was muscle-bound like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but the point is, is he was a relatively big guy, but he could move like a cat. And when you see Connery in those first four films, you know what Saltzman and Broccoli saw in him. And that's the physical presence. You know, Connery never got the credit as the great actor until years later. All during the Bond era, he was never by the critics. He was, oh, you know, he was just playing the hero role like it was easy. But he was never given the. It wasn't until The Wind and the Line in 1975, really, that that the modern Connery 2.0 great actor, you know, kind of took over. But mm -hmm. but in his Bond years, this is why he felt typecast. You know, nowadays actors kill for for um, series roles. Yeah. But back in those days, you were typecast. So it's a whole, it's a whole different paradigm in Hollywood. Uh, oh, yeah, you could even see it, particularly with uh, projects like Batman, for example, from 1989. Michael Keaton's coming back to that, and for years he wouldn't touch another Batman movie because he was typecast as Batman. Now we have Michael Keaton re returning. I know, uh, so. I say boo to that, too. I'm not a big fan. I was never a fan of the Keaton. No, well, but I'm just saying, in, in, uh, in general, uh, you know, in general, that that's the idea, that, you know, you're getting that to that point where it's more accepted to go back into the well and bring these uh, these kind of yeah, like characters yeah, back. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, the, the Hollywood's discovered fan culture. The stuff right. that fans used to talk about, basically fans, you know, the inmates are running the asylum out in Hollywood. Like the Snyder you know, Cut. People that are okaying <laughs> and greenlighting these things are fans of the source material. They don't have that bias. Yeah. You know, it took Michael Uslan, the producer of all the Batman movies, who... Yeah. Came of age in the 60s, was a fan of Batman, worked for DC as a young apprentice. The point is, is he bought the rights to Batman in 1979. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it took 10 years to make the first film? Because all during the 70s, Hollywood said, Batman, da-na-na-na-na, pow-zap, 
that that for Schlugner TV show. Well, look at look what happened years. with Superman. But look what happened with Superman in the seventies. Also, listen, the success of Superman is what made Michael Uslan get the Batman rights. But the point exactly. is, the yeah. success of Superman, at least the first two movies with Christopher Reeve, did mm-hmm. nothing to help. Michael Uslan get the Batman rights. Hollywood still thought Batman was a joke. It was because of the Dark Knight in 86. That changed everything. Listen, mo- yeah. half of the movie was based on the look and the feel of Dark Knight. So the point is, is that's what enabled Uslan to close the deal and make oh, the yeah. first film. If it wasn't for Dark Knight, uh, Batman never would have happened in the modern era. No, you're absolutely so that, right. What so I'm, what I'm, Knight, go, go, Frank go ahead. Miller's Dark Knight Returns was solely responsible for Batman yeah. 1989 being possible at all. At Correct. That point. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you're using it was one of the main things. It was one of the main things, though. But the yeah. point is, is the timetable tells you everything. He had the yeah. rights yeah. in '79, and okay. in his own words, he wrote a book called Batman, The Boy Who Loved Batman or something. It's all in there, yeah. public record. But mm-hmm. the point is, is you know, um, that really did change everything because, you know, the, the Dark Knight and all that, along with Watchmen and Mouse, all happened in the same year. And, yeah. you know, back in the late 80s, that was a big year for comics gaining this, quote, respectability in mm-hmm. the eyes of the literati and the and the eyes of you know the intelligentsia and mainstream media and then you know from that came the 1989 batman film and you know the rest is sort of history but it really you gotta remember they ran the batman franchise into the ground with the recently deceased joel schumacher with those horrible films in the 90s and you know it wasn't until the x-men franchise by marvel starting in 2000, you know, that's what really changed things. If it wasn't for the Marvel movies coming along... Well, I would say, even before that, Blade, uh, the first two yeah, Blade, Blade movies, really like held it together. Movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a, the, my number one fandom is in comics is Blade Arlen. I'm a huge Blade fan. I think that's my favorite comic series. And uh, if it... Yeah, if it wasn't for if it wasn't for those first two Blade movies, you would not have seen X Men. But the reason uh, yeah. why I don't think without the X Men, it wouldn't have happened because number one, you know, a vampire hero, or however you want to describe Blade. Let's leave out the racial implications, but given what's been going on <coughs> nowadays, what's changed? But the bottom line is, a black vampire hunter is not going to become mainstream enough. So even if the movies precursed the, um, I don't even know if that's a word, but came before the X-Men Precursed, that's a good word. Basically, (laughs) just keep it in the racial terms, it took a bunch of good-looking young white people to make superhero movies safe for America. And that's basically what happened. Even though, of course, the X-Men were multiracial and multigender and LGBTQ, whatever. And it started in Nazi Germany, so go figure. (laughs) <laughs> well, and you got to remember, when Jack Kirby created the X-Men in 63, none yeah. of the modern attitudes of the X-Men, that happened in 1969 when Roy Thomas and Neil Adams did that incredible stretch of X-Men and introduced mm-hmm. all yeah. these post-60s elements to the X-Men of them being mutants, being hunted, and being chased down. 
you don't really find that in the pre um, Adams X Men. You know, Jack Kirby just kicked off the title, but then did layouts. He wasn't really involved. The X Men ended up being canceled, and it was in it was in reprints for a couple of years before Neil Adams took it over in '69. And you know, I, I'm a Neil Adams scholar as well. I lecture on his work on his great Batman. And the point is, is you know, not only did he recreate Batman for the modern audience, there there would be no Dark Knight if it wasn't for Neil Adams' Batman. Correct. And, yeah. and there would be no modern X-Men if it wasn't for what Neil Adams did in 1969 and 70, working with Marvel's best writer, Roy Thomas. But, if you know, to use the term auteur, Neil Adams autoured everything he drew, even if another writer wrote the script. Just like in yeah. movies, it doesn't matter who writes the script, it's the director who makes the movie. And you see the script through the director's eyes. That's the whole auteur thing. I did a yeah. whole essay called The Auteur Theory of Comics, where I basically say the artist is the auteur, no matter whether he's working from a full script or from a phone call from an editor. Like when maybe Stan Lee in 1965 calls up Jack Kirby and says, hey, Jack, let's have the FF fight a really big villain next month, okay? And this is an urban legend. And then Jack goes to his basement studio in Long Island and comes up in 1965 with the Galactus Silver Surfer trilogy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yet the credits say written by Stan Lee. Right. But don't get me started on that subject because that's a whole other subject. Yeah, well, Mr. Uh, Stan Mr. is Schimmer. no longer with us. Yeah, so. call me Arlen. Who keeps giving me all this respect? <laughs> but I guess since I'm, I, I'm so, not, it's... since I'm so legendary, I guess... Iconic. Mr. Sh an icon. You know, <laughs> you know, talk about reality versus perception. You know, I, I, day, I hope I was taught respect, sir. I, I'm, I'm very sorry. I'm living with the with the reputation that you've so graciously uh, <laughs> afforded me. It could be worse. You could be a uh, uh, former actor in like in a prequel Star Wars, like Anakin Skywalker hitting Christensen or a young Jake Lloyd, and you don't want that kind of uh, you know like continuation wow. of people That's talking about you. <laughs> wow, that, that could be kind of mental. That was quite a. Uh, I like that little esoteric pop culture reference there. That you yeah, you liked it. Those yeah. poor two gentlemen. Uh, like Dennis Miller of pop culture ephemera. So that would make me what the Bill Maher. Oh, shatter no, the thought. I'll take that. I like Bill Maher. Okay. Uh, Johnny, you, you, you had a question. Go ahead, Johnny. He's the only guy that's also down to poop on Stanley, but yeah, I was just yes. wondering um, how how. You, personally rate um the new wave um new school black and white um scene from the late 80s and 90s guys like david mack and um um and mckeever and paul pope all those guys that kind of came out of there do you um have any of type of stuff i love all those guys paul pope <laughs> excuse me paul pope is one of our greatest modern cartoonists with a totally unique style <laughs> an American who somehow embodies the greatest hits of, like, European comics. And yet he's yeah. a born-and-bred American and really a, a, um, a, a unique character, uh, Paul Pope. Everything he touches, he imbues with his unique elements. But, yeah, like I said, you know, we're living since the 80s. 
I mean, it, it's hard to believe since comics are at their lowest readership ever. You know, the movies, it's funny. It's really bittersweet that comics have taken over the culture, and yet mm -hmm. the comics themselves, at least the mainstream Marvel and DC comics, are, are selling at their lowest levels. You know, the worst-selling Marvel and DC comic back in the day, the worst-selling, that would have gotten it canceled, is outselling whatever is the biggest seller. The top, yeah. So yeah. how bittersweet is that, that graphic novels are being reviewed as literature, that, you know, comics are being absorbed by Hollywood and turned into television and movies, and yet, and yet, the comic books themselves. And listen, I haven't even breathe. talked about all the independent people that are trying to self-publish and do their own thing. I'm just saying it's just ironic that the page-turning print medium of comics is dead. Well, and what, what's even sadder, though, Ireland, what, what's even sadder, though, is the, the industry, the shops are all closing down. And for future generations, they're not even going to have that anymore. That's what saddens me because I'm, I'm an old-school comic fan. I used to have my own comic shop in the flea market for a couple of years when I was younger. And I, I love going in and just reading comics with friends and talking about, like, certain things are happening in this, you know, line or this, you know, Marvel, whatever. How many bookstores are left? It's done There's now. A, other than Barnes & Noble, handful. what's left? There's no yeah, other bookstores? No, there everything's online. Be, there used to be. I mean, there still are independent bookstores, but my point is, is, yeah. you know, yeah, there's hardly any newspapers left. I yeah. mean, I've been hearing about the death of print since the early 70s. But yeah. I got to tell you, you know, it's worse than it's ever been. The fact that there are major cities in America without a newspaper is sad. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still like getting the New York Times every day, the paper version. I like turning the pages. I'm, I'm a child of the 20th century. I grew up with the love of print. If you love comics, you, you develop a love of print the page turning medium um and it's hard to give that up so to speak you know um people talk about the smell of comics like it's this yes you know sense memory which it is it's mm -hmm. like marcel proust biting into that madeline and writing remembrance of things past it's like you can mention a neil adams batman comic to me a specific one the 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 introduction of ray shagul in 1971 yeah. And I'll tell you exactly where I was on the floor of my bedroom in our little garden apartment in North New Jersey, eating a Thuman's bologna sandwich on a hard seeded roll with mustard and lettuce, no tomato. <laughs> when I was a kid, I hated tomato. And I was drinking a chocolate cream soda, not cream soda. And not chocolate soda. Not a Yahoo, right? By a company that's no longer around <laughs> called Cot, C-O-T-T. And its, oh, it's wow. ad slogan was, it's Cot to be good. And the point is, <laughs> the point is, is <laughs> I remember being blown away. You know, every time Neil Adams would draw Batman, you know, you never knew when it was coming. He drew all the covers, but then you'd go to open them up and there'd be Irv Novick or Bob, Bob Brown. No offense to those guys, but... After the awesome Neil Adams Batman covers, it was always a letdown. But then, imagine, you'd get the new issue of Batman or Detective Comics with a great Neil Adams cover. And that first Ra's al Ghul had that green mezzotin cover. You know that image? Yeah. It is, is you opened it up, and it was also a Neil Adams Batman story. 
it was like manna from heaven. And I yeah. remember, like I said, what I was eating, where I was sitting, because that's that's the impact of great art when you're a kid. It's like remembering a song off of the radio. Like you can remember like a little sort of dream image. You can remember the your physical environment, where you were, what you were doing. It's like, you know, when a famous person gets assassinated or something, you remember where you were. Mm -hmm. Certain memories in life create that like three-dimensional um, impact and you can fall. Synesthesia. Yeah. What was that, Charlie? I said it's like synesthesia. Like yes. Yeah. Now, that's a $10 word, by the way. Can you define yes. that? He just yeah, learned it the other day, too. <laughs> it's basically when you like you can like feel colors and, and taste um taste sound and stuff like that. Like all your yeah. senses are connected and you can like, right. feel there, and touch there. um uncorporeal right. things and stuff. That happens to me um, when I go to a movie theater, I like I smell the popcorn butter, you know I'm in the car still. Like I can just already smell the aura because I'm close to a movie theater. I don't know if that happens to you. Right. That because you said I really like popcorn and butter. I have another question for you, Arlen, because yes. you kind of brought up something that um, has, it's a very close subject to my heart. You brought up um, European comics, and I was just wondering, since you're a historian, like when the movie Valerian came out, did you find it very frustrating having to explain to people that like, no, 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 this movie didn't rip anything off. See, everything else in the world ripped this off, and like this yeah. is actually like an original idea, but it's just Like John Carter. We, the, we were talking earlier with John Carter, how everything that came up by after that. Uh, you know, borrowed from the John Carter books of Mars. And, uh, yes. you know, people don't give a credit where credit is due, but that's the originator of a lot of, like, Superman and, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, comic books that come out after that. Well, let me say, since you brought up both of those movies, first of all, John Carter, Edgar Rice Burroughs, that is yeah. the foundation, yeah. along with Tarzan. Tarzan is the model for the 20th century superhero. And, yeah. and John Carter... With the with the warring races, I mean every modern science fiction and fantasy everything of the 20th century, it comes out of John Carter. Now, what yeah. was the problem with the John Carter movie? Worst title ever. And you know why they left off of Mars? You know why it wasn't John Carter of Mars, which would have brought in an audience? Do you know why? Marketing. They didn't know yes, how to market it. I know it. why. Yeah. I know why. Reason. Go ahead, Zod. You know why? Because because Disney at the time was negotiating with George Lucas to get Star Wars and they wanted to do the best that they could to undercut John Carter so they no. didn't use John Carter no. of Mars. No, that's not oh. the reason. Let's hear the actual story and go ahead, Arlen. Well, this is the <laughs> the story I learned, which makes for a better story, even if it's not true. <laughs> a year before John Carter came out, the Disney Whoever it was had that animated movie. Was it Pixar? What one of those? You know, it was called Mars. Mars needs, needs moms. moms. And it yes. bombed. Yes. So I brought that up. The brain yeah. trust in Hollywood then deduced. Why did it fail? Oh well, it failed. So anything with Mars is a failure. Mm -hmm. So don't call <laughs> the movie John. Carter That's what I said Mars. earlier. Yep. Call it John Carter, which means nothing to nobody. In the, yes. in the, I'm trying to do my best of Thank you. Guy from Simpsons. Worst movie title ever. 
Okay. Other than it's funny so, you mentioned that in the first hour, I, I brought that up. Now, yeah. you also brought up Valerian. Yes. I, while I, I respect European comics, just like the way I respect European films, I'm mm-hmm. not really a fan because I don't have a visceral, emotional connection with European stuff like I do with American stuff. But I, yeah. I, I respect it, but my knowledge base. So I never read Valerian as a comic. I think I might have been aware of it. But when I went to see that movie, I got to tell you, worst casting ever. <laughs> that chick, that Carol yes. Delevingne, with that S-H-I-T, you know, board model. You know, she was a model. Yeah, yeah no acting skills whatsoever. Yeah. And the fact that there was no boy meets girl, like there was no tension. The movie begins where they're already... I, from what I remember, the movie, <laughs> all the special effects looked fake and plastic. Everything, yes. you know, what's the famous uh, Beatles? Nothing is real. Yeah. It looks worse than Jar Jar and the Phantom Menace, Arlen. looks fake. And that's from 1999. And it looked worse than the prequels. Can you imagine that? Comparing one piece of you-know-what to another. Well... Uh, that's like comparing diarrhea with a hard stool. Do you know what I mean? Yes. They're both but, S-H-I-T. Yes, Am I but... Can say that word on this podcast? You could say it. You could oh, say yeah, it. But, but the Phantom Menace compared is like the Godfather compared to like, you know, Bill and Ted's Excellent but Adventure. My point you know? is Valerian, that, the guy that played the male lead, they were the most unlikable... Male female duo yes. ever cast in a major motion picture that I mean it, it makes Dirty Mary and Crazy Larry look like an Oscar winner. And that's yeah, an esoteric seventies you know, <laughs> Peter Fonda and some chick, I forget her name. Yeah, they, they got the green um Susan uh, you know, I'm Arnold, I'm really glad that you you verified for me. We got to talk about Bruce, you know. Yeah, we're, we're gonna bring that up next week. But I'm I'm very happy you you ver- you verified what I said earlier about the whole Mars thing because it's it's ironic how every well, movie story that... is a better story. Mars needs moms, or that other story Johnny was telling. No, no, the the one you said is the one that I heard as a, as the main oh, reason. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, and that's years ago because they, Hollywood's had a long history of bombs when it comes to easy movies with the name Mars on it, Mission to Mars, uh, Red Planet. Mars. You know, have they all yeah. been bombs? All yeah. of them. They've all bonded the box office. Oh, so it wasn't just Mars. The no, bombs. it was a no. whole history. There's well, every movie the that's been Mars was was horrible too. Yeah, yeah. Got hor- came out and did horrible as well. The so Red they, yeah. Planet. Um, yes. Ghost Everything yeah. that was associated to Mars was bombing it's constantly. It's like it's like not calling Coca-Cola cola. You know, right. there are plenty of yeah. other colas, but there's only one Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. They should have said, hey, everybody, you tried the rest, meaning the other Mars movies, now come for the best, the only Mars movie that matters. That's yep. why we're in marketing. That should have been the aggressive campaign. Sean Carter of effing Mars. I would have been blazing in giant letters. Yeah, I always thought that they should have called it John Carter, Warlord of Mars, but they they didn't bother. That sounds a little unwieldy. Warlord of Mars (laughs) would have been fine. But you can't have the name John Carter in a mainstream movie in which a mainstream younger audience doesn't know jack shit about. 
The name John mm-hmm. Carter means nothing. And yet, yep. millions of dollars of Hollywood executives, you know how many green lights John Carter had to go through to become the title of that movie? Do you know how many people oh. had to sign off on that? It's incredible, but it's Disney. I mean, does that shock you? Look what that look what it did with Star Wars. I mean, they've ran that franchise into the ground. Just talk uh, about the title. Forget about the movie itself. Yeah, a bad title can sink a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. And the movie and was okay pretty damn good. John Carter is Bed Bath and Beyond Me. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. <laughs> uh, thank you. Bed Bath and Beyond. I love that. That's, I'm gonna have to steal that one, by the way. It's worth it. I got one. I got one last one for you, sir. Um, I know you love Twilight Zone. How do you rate Night Gallery? I personally like. It's not as good, but I love it. I love Rod's. Um, you don't like? Okay. You don't like Night Gallery? Hold on a second. You want me to answer that, or do you want to, you know, speak for me? Let, let, him, let him answer, John. Let him answer. He's the icon. Sixty years later since Night Gallery debuted, or 50 years later, excuse me, and in social media groups and Facebook, blah, 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 we're still debating the relative merits and quality of Night Gallery. It's defenders like the people that write the book on Night Gallery. I know them because I go to conventions for the Twilight Zone. The point is, is they claim, oh, you've never seen the Night Gallery and it's pristine, it was, you know, it was cut up and bungled on television and shot poorly. But, oh, if you see the DVD Blu-ray transfers, oh, blah, 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 blah. Hey, a bad story is a bad story. Cheesy filmmaking, horrible lighting, bad. I mean, I tried watching these Nike. I remember seeing them as a kid. And mm-hmm. I was a fan of the Twilight Zone as a kid. And I was disappointed with Night Gallery. Are there maybe a handful of episodes worth watching? And I'm being very harsh, but listen, I'm harsh on the Twilight Zone. I think yeah. half of its 156 episodes are dogs, half. But that leaves 75 episodes. I think 50 of those are what I would call good to great television. And then you're left with 25 half hours that I would give to the aliens if they had room on their spaceship for only <laughs> one example of Earth television. I'm not giving them the Sopranos. I'm not giving them Seinfeld. I'm giving them... Those 25 half-hour Twilight Zone episodes. But Night Guy, <laughs> Serling did not have creative control. Yes, he wrote a bunch of episodes. But I'm telling you, it, it is such a crappy-looking show. It looks tawdry. It feels yep. tawdry. It's a disservice to Serling's memory. Yes, they use some great writers, maybe some good directors. Listen, if you talk to a fan of the show, he'll tell you why it's so great. Now there's a book on the making of Night Gallery, and there's, you know, the, the DVD, you know, there's Facebook groups for Night Gallery, like there is for everything, basically. Everybody loves something. Somebody, my worst Twilight Zone episode is somebody else's favorite, and vice versa. Yeah. So this is yeah. what we fans discuss literally day and night, so to speak, is the relative merits of these things. But mm-hmm. I severely dislike because hate is a very strong word every post twilight zone remake or homage um starting with spielberg's 83 movie piece of crap and i'm surprised because spielberg is one of serling's metaphorical children yeah yeah 
just like George Lucas is and David yep. Lynch is and and um um what's his name the guy that did uh Titanic and Avatar what's his name uh James Cameron uh, Cameron no, these are all Sterling's metaphorical children even Nolan Christopher Stephen Nolan King. borrows from uh yeah, Christopher Nolan King. also yeah. was, even the second generation like the Nolan yeah. JJ Abrams if you yeah. grew up in the Twilight Zone on reruns the bottom mm-hmm. line is they are all Sterling's metaphorical children up yeah. including Jordan Peele who was handed the the keys to the kingdom and allowed to do yet another Twilight Zone, you know, new version, which just recently dropped its second season. And I Is got that problems. Any good or... uh, it's meh. But you know, have you guys seen Black Mirror? Do you know what Black Mirror is? Yes, yes. Black yeah. Mirror is awesome. Okay. Black Mirror is this Englishman Charlie Brooker. So he's got an individual sensibility. And he chose to do his homage to the Twilight Zone. By mm-hmm. making all the stories fall under the general umbrella of technology gone awry. And under that umbrella, see, the Twilight Zone was an anthology show, so it had a little bit of everything, but everything had to be metaphysical. But he yeah. chose to just make all the stories, you know, meditations on technology gone amok or awry. And even. You know, a lot of the episodes are padded. I would trim them down to a half hour, just like Twilight Zone. But even the su- there's only been 19 episodes of Black Mirror, so it's not like you know there's already 20 episodes of Jordan Peele's thing. But mm-hmm. the point is, is even the lesser Black Mirror episodes are better than even the so-called good Jordan Peele episodes. I find Peele's episodes have been kind of overbaked and underdone at the same time. Yeah. If I you agree. kind of know what I mean, they're very, yeah. you know, CBS has given them a, a very flashy, but not, not in depth looking. Yeah, they're beautifully shot. But again, that's yeah. like saying, hey, great special effects. In the end, though, the stories, some of the concepts are a little interesting, mm-hmm. but they don't really develop them to their like nth degree. They kind of go half ass. So when I say meh, you know, or, you know, your mileage may vary. As we said, <laughs> okay. Hey, don't forget to check it out yet. So, hero of rock and roll, come on. We barely by talked the, about Bruce. By the way, I, well done. By the way, I, I love the uh, the dialogue and the narration for the uh, twelve minute clip you have on YouTube of the Twilight Zone. I've been listening to it uh, the last couple of days. It's awesome. Yeah, that's based on my coffee table art book that I did. Yeah, let's plug so that. I, that's I awesome. Have it right here, look in black and white. And look, when I take off the dust jacket. That's the very first image I can recall as a child, the wow, eyeball yeah. hanging in outer space. And I had it embossed in white on the cloth cover of my hardcover book. This is still the only coffee table art book based on the TV show. It's out of print, yep. but you go on Amazon, they're linked to the second You'll find it. sites. The hardcover yeah. hard to find, but you know, worth the price of admission. Definitely, definitely. That, that is beautiful. Wow. Um, now let's get into Bruce because I know it's July 22nd coming up. Uh, Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Yep. Eastern Standard Time. How can people check that out? It's a webinar. Okay, check so it out? basically I'm working with this company out of New York City called New York mm-hmm. Adventure Club. So okay. when you go to their website, which is basically www.nyadventureclub.com, you'll mm-hmm. see immediately on their homepage – all of their variety of pretty much daily webinars. You know, they used to be a live in-person meetup organization that would do like walking tours of New York City and things. 
obviously in March, the pandemic shut him down overnight. So he was looking for people who were experts to do webinars and they had to be visual because when you go to a webinar, you're looking at a screen. So he was talking to a friend yeah. of mine in New York City yeah. who's an expert on Frank Sinatra about doing a Sinatra webinar. And he said, I, I'm looking for people that are visual, that are experts. He goes, you should talk to this guy, Arlen Schumer. So ever since April 1st, I've been doing these pop culture webinars once a week about, you know, all the things that I love, whether it's comic book history, whether it's Twilight Zone, in the age of Corona, all the episodes that reflect what we're going through now. I just did that one Wednesday night. Next Wednesday, I'm reprising a show I did about Bruce Springsteen, which is another one of my pop culture children, so to speak, that I've done major works on. And again, when you go to my website, arlenschumer.com, there are separate pages for Twilight Zone, comic book history, and Bruce Springsteen. But yep. basically, I put together for a webinar, um, a, I curated basically his greatest live performances that have been captured on film or video that I've sourced from YouTube, all different areas. Some are very obscure that even if you consider yourself a Bruce fan, you may not have seen these things. But also I present them in context chronologically, bracketed by still images and my commentary. So you get a retrospective of literally his entire career in two and a half hours, like seeing a kind of a, a, a live documentary being performed as a webinar and in real time and we're gonna we're gonna get more and more of that in the future uh, yeah. don't like him doesn't matter you tune yeah. to my webinar and i guarantee you um i'll blow your mind even if you're a serious bruce fan you haven't seen anything like this webinar so um that's, that's next awesome. wednesday eight o'clock and even if you can't see the webinar live New York Adventure Club sets it up so that buying a ticket allows you to watch a live recording of the webinar to play back anytime you want for an entire week. So oh, a lot of cool. people think, oh, webinars, if I can't make it live, I can't even do it. You have to buy a ticket, and it's only $10. Yeah. But the point is, is that ticket, you don't have to see it live. But think about it. When you go to watch a recording of it, you're, you're getting, in a sense, it's as if it is live because you see my live image talking. You, you hear it's as if you're seeing it in the moment you watch it, kind of like a podcast. Right, so that's right, right. the nice thing about uh, the webinar is that it really lives on like anything you record on the, in real time. So that's, um, that's a nice thing. But, you know, I show you a lot of images. These ain't your father's uh, art history lectures. I mean, I show hundreds of images in, you know, in an hour, but literally every sentence I speak, I illustrate with an image. So you're going to get a history of Bruce in two and a half hours like you've never seen before. And that's awesome. Got a good beat and you can dance to it, if you know what I mean. When you see some of the clips I'm going to show that you've never seen, Angel, mark my words. What I'm saying to you right now, what was the famous Arnold Schwarzenegger line? Heal me now and listen. Heal me now. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah. How's that for? That's pretty good, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, that's say. not bad. Yeah, okay. you're good. So hear me now, and everybody listening into this, I guarantee you that there are going to be clips you've never seen that are going to blow your mind, which is why Bruce Springsteen does have the reputation he deserves as the greatest live 
rock and roll performer in history. In history. Greatest. And when you see some of these clips, these are the clips doing the songs, the way he does them and performs them, that give proof to the legend that it's not BS. It's not smoke and mirrors. And I'm showing you what we call the goods. You know what I mean by the goods? How long has uh, Springsteen been uh, around now? How many decades are we talking about here? We're talking about four decades? In, in basically the 70s. In, yeah. in 2023, it'll be 50 years since Bruce released his first wow. album. And wow. he's performing as a musician since the mid to late 60s when he was 16 years old. Wow. And he's turned 71. Wow. 71 in September. The and he's still is, going at it. I saw him back in 78 for the first time, 29 years old, maybe at the prime of his career. And yet, when you see some of these clips from earlier, from 74, they're going to blow your mind. But those earlier clips are why people like his future manager, the rock and roll album critic, a Rolling Stone album critic, John Landau, sees Bruce in 1974 opening up for J Bonnie Raitt at the Harvard <sighs> Square Theater, May of 74. And he debuts a song called Born to Run at that performance. John Landau, the leading critic of American rock and roll, Rolling Stone, comes home so blown away by the performance that he writes a column for the Boston version of the Village Voice called The Real Paper. And in that column, which goes on for pages, he only mentions Bruce in the last five inches of the column. For the first nine-tenths of the article, he's doing a personal reminiscence of his life in rock and roll, all the bands that he saw when he was a kid, the reason why he became a critic, an autobiographical reminiscence about his life in rock and roll. But then we get to the last six inches, the last six paragraphs, and Landau writes... I've been jaded for many years in the 70s, after Altamont, after the death of Jimi Hendrix. The early 70s were a gray period, believe me. But yeah. now there's somebody that I can write about like the way I used to write about. Tonight I saw my rock and roll past flash before my eyes, but I also saw something else. I saw rock and roll future, and its name is Bruce Springsteen. That is what made Bruce's career. People like Landau were seeing Bruce in those early years. By the way, describing him as a punk with quotes around the word punk. <laughs> yeah. Bruce is one of the godfathers, along with Iggy Pop, Bruce is one of the other American godfathers of punk, but he's never given the credit. Yeah. But critics in 19... Oh, he is now. But the people remember him for out, born in the U.S. That's what people remember him, you know. Johnny, I uh, he came out and he actually he came out and he actually did a song with a proper yeah. punk rock band called the Dropkick Murphys. It's a, they did a redoing of an old fashioned Irish song called um, "Peg of My Heart." They tear it up. He, he actually sometimes when he's in um, the Boston area, he'll show up and play gigs with oh, the Murphys course. and of come course. on play that yeah. song when with I them. I say he's one of the Godfathers of punk. What I mean is, there were two types of punk. There was the Sex Pistols and that whole brand. But then there was the Elvis Costellos, the Clashes, that are still, you know, their music was more about bringing rock and roll back to its sort of simpler, stripped-down roots. 
away from the early 70s glam rock and prog rock and art rock and, you know, the flamboyancy of Elton John and all that rods, all that bullshit. And Bruce comes out before all of that in 73, 74. He's doing that with his music. So when he goes to London for the first time, right after Born to Run came out, he does two shows at the London Hammersmith Odeon in 1975. Now, critics give the credit for the Ramones touring Europe in 76 as jump-starting the punk movement because all the punks that broke in 77 saw the Ramones in 76. But remember I said there are two brands of punk. People like Joe Strummer and Elvis Costello, a.k.a. Day Clan McManus, they saw Bruce at the Odeon. And Joe Strummer, in his 2000 autobiography, says he was at that show with his then-manager at the time. If you know the history of The Clash, Strummer was in a kind of a roots rock band before The Clash. I forget what they yep. were called. The point is, is in his book, his autobiography, he says he's watching Bruce on stage, blowing his mind, and he elbows his manager <laughs> and he points to Bruce and he goes, that guy is doing up on stage what I want to be doing. And that's, that's what I mean book. when yeah. he was wearing the rip leather jacket, the, 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 the yeah. black leather jacket, the jeans and the sneakers with the ripped white T-shirt while the Ramones were still in high school. Yeah. And Bruce doesn't get the credit, but I, I don't want to, I, I digress a little. The point I'm trying to make is Landau leaves his job and joins the circus and makes that bold prediction actually come true which is the only time in the history of high and low culture that the leading critic of a major art form becomes the personal manager and producer of what many considered one of the leading proponents of that art form. And lo and behold, like Joe Namath predicting the Jets will beat the Baltimore Colts in the Super Bowl three, mm -hmm. which is still the greatest sports upset in history. One of them, Bruce yeah, being I, the future yeah. of rock and roll, gee, here we are 50 years later. Yeah, I think it came true. In fact, the alt-country movement considers Bruce's acoustic classic, Nebraska, to be the founding album of the alt-country movement itself. Correct, yeah. He's a trendsetter. Before there was a, a thing uh, labeled trendsetters, Bruce Springsteen was the guy. Well, the way I, I mean, when you say the guy... You know, yeah. we use the expression, you're the man, he's the man. There are yeah. very few men who actually are the man. You know, I love Sean Connery Bond, but that was a role he was playing. Right. You know, Bruce Springsteen is Bruce Springsteen. When I tell you he yep. is the man, I mean he is the man because there are very few men that you can say that about. Yeah, people like to bring up Elvis, and I'm like, well, Elvis stole, you know, his uh, image he, music he, from. He blew yeah. his career. He ceded yeah. too much control. Yeah. He squandered his career with that colonel. I blame the colonel. Yeah. But I also blame Elvis for, you know, he was really a babe in the woods. He was lost. Yeah. And he had yeah. such natural talent. He was brilliant, and yet, and yet, um. You know, I've never been a big Elvis fan, even though Bruce is a big Elvis fan. Yeah. I consider Bruce the the promise of rock and roll delivered. Elvis burned out. You know, Dylan at its height burned out and mm -hmm. sort of had to come back. 
You know, the Beatles only lasted a certain amount of time. Jimi Hendrix yeah. burned out. Bruce is not. Those are the foundations of rock and roll. Elvis for the yeah. singular um, a person. Dylan for the lyrics. The Beatles for the band. And Hendrix for the guitar. That's the foundation of rock and roll as I see it. Bruce is not one of those four pillars. Mm-hmm. But he is the roof built over that foundation. Yep. He is the promise He's got the lyrics. He's the only new Dylan to become a new Dylan and maybe even gone beyond Dylan, even though Dylan is one of the gods. He's one of the pillars. But mm-hmm. Bruce takes the lyrics of Dylan. You know, he said he want about Born to Run. He said, I wanted the lyrics of Dylan with the vocals of Roy Orbison, with the sound of Phil Spector's Wall of Sound. Mm. And he achieved that with the song and the album Born to Run. But that shows you what I mean about Bruce being, and this is why Bruce is the superhero of rock and roll, to connect it to my other loves. Because like Captain Marvel, when he says Shazam, the word Shazam is because he's made up of equal parts of the wisdom of Solomon, the strength of Hercules, you know, the something Shazam. Power, right? Bruce yep. Springsteen, like I said, he's equal parts. When you see the the segment i'm going to play in the webinar from 1978 the live version of one of his rays and detras called prove it all night you know bruce is not respected as the great guitar player he is but when you see the sample i'm going to show you next week at the webinar of him playing i think he was channeling hendrix that night and you watch that version of prove it all night and you tell me when it's over if you don't agree with me. But that's what I mean about he's got the lyrics of Dylan. The E Street Band, the positive spirit and energy is what I remember the Beatles representing when they were that live. I love the early Beatles. I yeah. love 64 to 66. I love the pop Beatles. I'm not a, mm-hmm. as big a fan. I respect all their music. They're my second favorite music after Bruce. But but the point is, is, is that I love that positive, uplifting, early pop song Beatles, yeah. you know, so that spirit. When that drug uh, happened, got really bad. That spirit. And then, you know, Bruce is also, you know, the leading guitar figure. Yeah. Like, and with It's like Elvis with a guitar. What more do you want? Bruce is the man. He's the man. He's the rock and roll promise delivered. And in my webinar next week, final plug, I will show you in the way I curate his greatest live performances that have been caught on video film. And it's not a lot. He came of age in the 70s pre-video era. Yeah. But we're lucky that certain things have survived, unlike Bob Dylan and some of the other greats, like the Beatles themselves, where there's not a lot of footage. Bruce Mm -hmm. doesn't have a lot of footage either, but as as, um, here's a pop culture... um, illusion as spencer tracy once said of katherine hepburn there's not a lot of meat on them bones but what's there is churse there you go <laughs> there you go and uh, God, again fan you've laughed at all of my jokes i i did um i you i get, love dad jokes that's all i can say and <laughs> but honestly um how do, how do you rate Tom Petty, just wondering? Because in my personal opinion, I'd probably he's probably the guy that I would say is closest to like what Bruce Springsteen can do and the type of 
with it, like they kind of mm. made music Bruce for like Springsteen's everybody, like you were saying for like the to, okay. punks. So Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run, not only was pre-punk, but it opened the door in 1975 for so many bands and styles of of back to basics rock and roll that emerged. You got Meatloaf and Jim Jim Steinman's been trying to rewrite Jungle Land his whole career. <laughs> yeah, and then you've got people like John, True. you know, Melonhead. And, excuse me, John Mellencamp, but start out as John yeah. Cougar, and then you've got, of course, Tom Petty. Tom Cougar, Mellencamp. Now, in honor of Tom Petty, let me do my karaoke version of what I believe is his greatest hit. Well, she was an American girl raised on promises. She couldn't help thinking that there was a little bit of life. Somewhere else, after all, it was a great big world with lots of places to run to. And if she'd have to die, trying, she had one little promise she was gonna keep. Oh, yeah, all right, take it easy, baby, and make it last all night. Make it last all she night. She was an American girl. American. Uh, Johnny, did that answer your question? Come on, man. Yeah, no. I mean, I just oh. personally <laughs> make compliments. Thanks a lot. Boy, tough crap. <laughs> no, 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 no. That, that's good singing. You should. We've actually I think had you blew his mind several already. times on the okay, show, listen, and it's terrifying. Twilight's on a Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> everybody can do a Rod Serling approach, right? Everybody, but only I can do Rod Serling doing Bruce Springsteen. Are you ready? Imagine, give it to us. Give it to us. Give it to me. Spotlight, the smoking cigarette, and I turn to the audience and I go, <laughs> in the day we sweated out on the streets of a runaway American dream, at night we ride through mansions of glory and suicide machines. Baby, this town rips the bones from your back to death trap. We've got to get out while we're young because tramps like us, baby, we were born to run into the Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah. That is awesome. That was awesome. Oh man, yeah. Woo. Nailed that like Jesus on a cross. Oh, that's that's man, gonna be I'm, like I'm a. In the zone. I'm in the zone. <laughs> that's a that's a sound clip for the show forever, man. That Thank should you, like man. wow. See, yeah, deliver, we, that's a promo. That's a promo for the show. Now again, the uh, the webinar is next week, July twenty second at eight p.m. Eastern. Uh, those who want to buy tickets, ten bucks. Website again is nyadventureclub.com. Right. That's where you can go and check webinars. it. The week after that, on the 29th, I'll be doing my Sean Connery Bond webinar Wednesday at eight. Cool. And then in August, I shift to earlier in the day, three p.m. to do a series of comic book art history master classes, starting with Carmen Infantino, the guy that did the Flash. August 5th, then I do Steve Ditko, the creator of Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, August 12th. These are still Wednesdays, but they're earlier at 3 p.m. And then um, Joe Kubert, the great DC Comics, Hawkman, and War Comics artist, amongst other things. Uh, And then I think uh, after that, I return to, um, geez, I forgot my schedule. But the bottom line is, if you stick on nyadventureclub.com or even my own website, arlentruman.com, and you go to my blog, I always post my upcoming webinars and events there as well. Awesome. And uh, Double please. your money back if not satisfied, by the way. 
please uh, keep me up to date with all the webinars. I mean, I'm going to go on the website, obviously, a lot, but I want to definitely check out the Bruce Springsteen one because that sounds phenomenal for all, like, historians of rock and roll and just uh, Bruce Springsteen exactly. fans in general. I mean, that's uh, – and you, you, you absolutely nailed it. Fan, even if you've seen yeah. a lot of his stuff. And by the way, this is not a retrospective of his official videos. Those yeah. you can get anywhere. You right. know, these are these are his live performances that many of them are super rare, hard to find, and it's all in the way you curate it. Anybody mm -hmm. can go to YouTube and see these things individually, but I give it to you as a live documentary in the moment that, believe me, is no boring documentary. That's why you are recognized as the most expert in American pop culture. Award-winning, by the way. He gets me a latte at Starbucks, by the way. <laughs> plus, he, plus, he likes Paul Pope, so, like, yeah, he's totally a winner in my book, man. Anybody got anything good to say about Pope? Yeah, yes. Boy. Guaranteed. Yeah, well, Arlen, nice uh... Me on, Angel, and Johnny, nice meeting you. And, uh, oh, don't forget Zad over here. he's been really quiet. I think he's just mind-blown about the whole, uh, experience with the Twilight yeah, Zone. it's been absolutely fantastic. <laughs> your, your Twilight Zone was spot on. I, I love yeah. every moment of it. Wow. And you know, awesome. you can go to New York Adventure Club or email them, I think, info at nyadventureclub.com, and you can see any of my past webinars cool. <laughs> that you missed. Cool. And again, the same deal. You pay your $10 and you get to watch it for a week. Nice. That's awesome. So, pretty good deal. And like I said, uh, double your money bike if not satisfied. And I've never had to double anybody's money back. Well, just the hour I spent here with you and the we spent here with you, I know for a fact that it's going to be exciting for all fans of uh, the John Imagine Ryan. Imagine this mouth know. with with images. Forget about just the mouth. For, you Imagine. know what I mean? <laughs> the images alone. You can turn off the sound on my webinars if I if I irritate you, and just watch the pictures, and you'll love it. Well, that sounds like an episode of Charmed when I just turned on the <laughs> volume. <laughs> <laughs> Arlen, you're awesome, man. Thank you so much for uh, thank you for spending your hour here with us. And I, hey, next time have me on for the whole two hours, and we still won't have time enough to cover everything. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, no, guaranteed. Uh, we're gonna have uh, you on back, and uh, you know we want to definitely help you keep promoting all these webinars. And it's been a pleasure. You, you're awesome. Thank you so much for being here with us. I know we got you a little bit late, so you know we'll no, let you. No, uh... listen, I'm a late night guy. Uh, I've done I've done podcasts after midnight because in California it's you know 9 p.m. But here it's yeah. midnight. But I, I'm a late night. Listen, I'm an artist, freelance. I I keep late hours, and you know. So this is I, I'm listen. I'm just getting started, man. Oh, there you go. There you go. And uh, the webinar is awesome. The evening or whatever it's called. The time is perfect, by the way, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern. That's, right. you know, perfect for both coasts. I mean, it's early. Like I said, even if you can't see it live, just yeah. buying a ticket gets you access for a week to watch a recording of the webinar anytime you want for that whole week. I was laughing. You know, like in a psychiatrist's office, say the first thing that comes to mind, a recurring nightmare. <laughs> That's Johnny for you. <laughs> Alan Schumer in recurring nightmare. Iconic. And we're going to call him Mr. Yeah. Not Sir. off the air. <laughs> Insert from now on. Two I'm polite. I'm, I'm sorry. You know, like, like Sir Elton John. I'm Sir Arlen Schumer. Okay, I'll take it. There you go. <laughs> well, without the funny uh, get up. 
because, <laughs> you know, Elton, you know, like, this is saying at one point he could have played Howard the Duck. And that Donald ah. Duck costume he wore was lit, though, man. Like, he had or not, I was a major Elton John fan right before I heard the song Born to Run. And then, like a needle going from empty to full, I went right from being a major Elton John fan right to being a major Bruce fan in 1975. Because you were like, oh, so this is what actually rock and roll sounds like. Oh, okay. So, listen, I loved Elton John. And then in the, his early, those first five years, that's his golden yeah. era. Yeah. From, you know, the first album to Island Girl in the fall of 75. But the fall of 75 is when Born to Run came out. And I yeah. loved Elton John. I loved his voice. I loved his music. I still do. But when I heard the song Born to Run coming out over my AM car radio when I had just started to drive, I had never heard, not only was the music unbelievable, but I had never heard a singer sing with such conviction such passion, like his life depended on it. Now, yep. I love Elton John, but, you know, I knew that he was only singing the lyrics Bernie Taupin wrote. Not that he didn't sing them like any great interpreter like Frank Sinatra didn't write his songs either. A lot of the great singers didn't write the songs they're known for. But that's what makes rock and roll great is at its best, and it started with the Beatles, rock and roll is when people sing and play the stuff that comes from them. And usually, I mean, that's what Dylan innovated, by writing your own lyrics. So when I heard the song Born to Run, and by the way, there is a track making the rounds. You can find it, I'm sure, on the Internet. But it's Bruce's isolated vocals from the song Born to Run. When you just hear this guy emoting, and guys, I'll, I'll email you an MP3. I've Please. got your email address, Angel, and you can send it to yeah. John, whatever. But the point is, is when you hear his isolated vocals alone and the passion and the commitment, this is what blew my mind when I was 17 years old after growing up with rock and roll when the Beatles hit and the Four Seasons and all those 60s groups. But hearing Bruce, it was the equivalent of, you know, when, when Saul is on the road to Damascus, you know, and you had your Zen night. moment. That was your Zen moment. That's when you realized. Yeah. <laughs> my mother's yeah. <laughs> 74 duster. I was on the road to Paramus, the land of the shopping malls. When I heard the song born to run. <laughs> so but what you're trying to moment, the musical scales fell from my ears. If you know your new Testament, <laughs> are you trying to say though that you, you just completely do not believe that Elton John spends all of his Saturday nights just out there fighting. Like, you're going to say that, like, you don't believe that. <laughs> hey, don't knock one of the great rock and roll songs. Oh, in I love very it. I... dark period in rock and roll history, the early 70s, when singer-songwriters and mellow uh, folk rock and all that bullshit was saturating the airwaves, and you had very few people playing anything resembling rock and roll. And let me tell you something. A song like Saturday Night Live, a night's all right for fighting is a great rock and roll song it's timeless yeah. and there are some lyrics in there by bernie Taupin. a couple of the sounds that i really like are the sounds of a switchblade on a motorbike and a motorbike i mean it's a great rock and roll song so for you to pull that one out of your hat there's a lot of listen yeah that album knows. called caribou in 74 <laughs> there's a song on it called solar prestige a gammon and what mm -hmm. is it? 
It's Bernie Taupin, flush with the billions of dollars they were making on Elton John. He said, you know what? I bet you I could write a song of utter nonsense words and syllables and give it to Elton, and he can still make it into a hit song. And they actually put it on an album. And the lyrics go like this. Solar. And the fact that I can still remember this mm-hmm. tells you how big of an Elton John fan I was before Bruce. But it was Solar Prestige, Egamon, Cool Car, Kiri K, Salmon, Herring, Molasses, Abounding. I mean, are you kidding me? That was the condition. That was of the lyric? Before <laughs> Bruce Springsteen came on the scene. So can we say that in, in ending here, can we say that he would be considered in your end as the real king of rock and roll, Bruce? Let me tell you something. I have never once referred to him as the boss, even though that is his so-called nickname. Bruce mm-hmm. himself never liked it. It was yeah. his bandmates in the late 60s and early 70s. Listen, the counterculture generation identified a boss with the establishment. And yeah. that goes back to the 1930s and the unions. The yeah. boss was the bad guy. Yeah. So they started. That's really- why he always looks like he's having a stroke when he's like on stage. Right, but no, no. But they were kidding him because he was the boss of the band. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, said, yeah. Hey, boss. Well, the point is, is when you said, "Is he the king?" Yeah, I would maintain yeah. Bruce has not has never been the boss to me. But no offense to Elvis. But Bruce is the true king of rock and roll in the sense that he was the promise that Elvis displayed but didn't fulfill. Now, Elvis fans will tell you he did fulfill it when Mm -hmm. he came back in 68 and blah, blah, blah. Well, listen, we can debate this. But the point is, is Bruce is the promise of all the early rock and rollers. You know, they threw Chuck Berry in jail. They, yeah. You know, they, 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 you know, Jerry Lee Lewis with the fourteen-year-old wife and all that. By the early '60s, music was little Richard. From... We can't forget little Richard, though. Right. I mean, he was they, very instrumental. Right. They, very they, instrumental. The point is, is in the whole black thing and the race thing. The yeah. point is, is, if the Beatles hadn't come along, God bless them. You know, rock and roll never would have happened. It would have died out. Yeah. In the '60s, you want to get a really, you know, I just saw Bye Bye Birdie on television. That was made in 1963 even mm-hmm. though the stage play was made in 1960. But if you yeah. want to get an idea of what American music and rock and roll, and I use rock and roll in quotes, just pop music would have been without the Beatles, go watch the movie Bye Bye Birdie, and mm-hmm. you will see 1963 Young America, as portrayed by Hollywood, of course, but yeah. you will see the styles and the attitudes that the Beatles basically put an end to overnight, just with their hair alone. But my point is, it is. I was watching it just, you know, on on the Turner Movie Channel last week, and I was just blown away by this realization that, oh my God, because what you're going to see is very plastic and soulless. It was mm-hmm. American youth culture created by adults, not by the the teens themselves. Yeah. And it was very safe, 1950s, even though this is 1963. This is pre-Beatles, which changed everything. Anyway. No, you're absolutely right. That, that whole era of music was very pre-packaged, bubblegum, uh, manufactured. Um, you know, Phil Spector was doing interesting things. The Beach Boys were emerging, the Four Seasons. They're yeah, but even the Beach Boys, at the, at, at, the Beach Boys were still kind of a fun music. Yeah. 
and you know, it was it wasn't really hardcore. were still even Motown was Moon June, yeah. boy, boy yeah. loves girl, blah blah blah. Yes, right. the, it took the Beatles and Bob Dylan basically to mm. create modern rock and roll as we know it. But yep. without them, uh, we would have had a Bye Bye Birdie world. So I don't think anybody's ever thought about Bye Bye Birdie as a precursor to a possible apocalypse without the Beatles. But watch it with that in mind, and I guarantee you it'll be a fresh experience. No, guaranteed. Guaranteed. Uh, I always say that the Beach Boys were like a step above the monkeys. Well, you know, the the Beach Boys were really good, (laughs) and they came up with so much stuff that we take for granted in music production nowadays. They they came up with so much stuff. So their music was a little spoofy and goofy. But but they didn't have a Peter Tork. Here's the thing with the monkeys. (laughs) They're very well loved because some of their songs, which were written by yeah. the the Hollywood Brill Building collaboration, yeah. that turned out songs that have become classics. And yeah. for for a year or two, you know, the Monkees outsold the Beatles. Hard yeah. to believe, but a lot of those songs are well loved. Whether it's uh, "I'm a Believer," "Daydream Believer," yes. "Pleasant Valley Sunday." I mean, Stepping these stone. are songs that... Road to Clarksville. Up. I'm just saying, you yeah. know, you can criticize the monkeys. Oh, they were a put-together... Which they were. It was a total cynical gesture to sponge off the Beatles. But the bottom line is, you know, they got some... It worked. They got the right people. And they got the right songwriters. Yeah. And, you know, the rest is literally history. Um, yeah. How sad is that, though, that uh, it took, uh, you know, the death of Davy Jones to get them all back together, kind of. Uh, and, and they were back together the before. Three. They were yeah. out, like just like Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Over yeah, but they, years, it wasn't. It Nesmith, wasn't with uh, Michael Nesmith. They with them, but yeah, they exactly. With them. They've got a complicated history, but yeah. they were together. They were apart, together, apart, whatever. Mm-hmm. But well, they, there wasn't a kind of thing where once that guy died, all of a sudden everything changed. No, but Michael Nesmith, like you said, refused to play with him for years, and then David Jones died, and oh, then now all of a sudden, yeah, back. that's when he came back, and, and I was like, man, what a missed opportunity, because so when they did come Mike back. My favorite Nesmith song you know? is the song that he wrote that was Linda Ronstadt's first hit when she was with a group called the Stone Ponies, mm-hmm. and it was called Different Drum. You yeah. and I traveled. Yeah. That is a great, yep. one of the great pop songs of the 60s. And that was where we first heard Linda Ronstadt's vocals. And Mike yeah. Naismith wrote that from the Monkees. Mike Naismith is a, it's a great musician, and he's very yeah. underrated. But very I'm saying back underrated. then, we just thought he was, you know, we all thought the Monkees were jokes. We didn't really <laughs> yeah. sleep. Yeah. But like I said, people bought those albums and loved that music. Their music has stood the test of time. And yeah. people who love good pop songs... Because they were written by Carol King and Ellie Greenwich and all of those Phil Spector, Brill Building songwriters from the early '60s. Neil Diamond, uh, Tommy Boyce, and Bobby Hart. I mean, these are like classic '60s songwriters. So we want to dismiss the Monkees, but you can't really dismiss them. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's all a time capsule, also of like that That's era. That they were really like when you look at the TV show, the fact that you know they were you know a, a put together band for a TV show, but when you look at the Monkees and you look at that era, they were the perfect uh, you know description of the Beatles the whole time era. They were a perfect capsule. Capsule, uh, really, they put together that entire music genre in that time period of the fifties, sixties. Yeah, but if you have and, a choice to watch, uh, you know, Hard Day's Night and Help, 
versus oh, of course. Of the monkeys. I'm saying even as a kid, <laughs> yeah. we knew the you monkeys. You watched the Beatles. Right? Yeah. I wasn't into the monkeys. I mean, I remember I liked some of their songs <laughs> that I heard on the radio, but I didn't watch the show. I thought the show was stupid, even as a kid. And like it I said, funny, I love yeah. the Beatles. And, yeah. you know, you look at Hard Day's Night. Okay, help isn't as good. But Hard Day's Night alone, that's what the monkeys come from. Everything the monkeys did, they were trying yep. to be a Hard Day's Night. And yeah, what yeah, was yeah. the one where Paul McCartney had the perverted uncle that, like, kept getting kept chasing little night. girls around? Hard Day's yeah, that, Night. You that's know, hilarious, he's man. Very that clean. He's very clean. That was the yeah. recurring line. He's very clean, yeah. though. <laughs> As, yeah, that's considered a 60s classic. Hard it's Day's a night. great film, yeah. And I it's, just, you know, Richard Lester, some of the direction is groundbreaking. The way he chose to cut the film, the mixture of slow motion, the yeah. effects that he used. It's a very uh, a 60s influential film coming out when it came out. Even though it was literally thrown together, they ended up making a, a modern masterpiece amongst film aficionados. It's, it is considered, listen, everything the Beatles touched back then. When they yeah. did an animated film, it was Yellow Submarine, which is a modern classic. You know, whatever the Beatles did, that was what made them so groundbreaking, is that everything they touched for a time, with the exception of, of course, Magical Mystery Tour, everything they touched pretty much turned to gold. And that's why they're the Beatles. Yeah. What do you but, think of, uh, uh, hold on real quick, what do you think of, uh, speaking of, uh, and you hit uh, one of my favorite directors, Richard Lester, uh, what do you think of, like, the history, the way it's remembered him after Superman 2 and... Richard Donner, uh, you know, doing the Donner cut of Superman 2. And uh, the fact that after Superman 3, did what the Musketeers was the last movie did. Yeah. Listen, uh, I mean, uh, his career went Superman downward. too because of Donner's involvement. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever Richard Lester did on the second film, most of it is still Donner. Jeffrey yeah. Unsworth, the great cinematographer who died while working on the film. A lot of his work... Superman 1 and 2 are sort of, you know, bookends or whatever, but everything else is totally dismissible and, you know, uh, not even worth discussing. And listen, a lot of people don't like the mm -hmm. second half of the first Superman when yeah. they do a kind of with Gene Hackman and Ned Beatty as a kind of a Batman TV show campy villain pair. They like the first half of Superman, but not the second half. So this is yeah. what, again, we're still debating, you know, decades later, but... Like I said, to me, you know, it's hard to beat the first half of Superman 1 in terms of a serious director, Richard Donner, with a great cinematographer, a good script, taking the Superman mythos seriously and mm -hmm. putting it on film. I mean, when I saw that, that scene in the Kansas wheat fields where Clark is on one side of the screen, and I saw this movie 10 times in December of 78, by the way all for this scene, and the mother's on the right side of the screen. And, you know, you got to remember, from the comic books, all the, all the legend of Superman's origin were like the stations of the superhero cross, you know, the destruction of Krypton, the rocket going to Earth. These yeah. are all set in our minds in certain visual, iconic ways. So the comic Superman leaving Kansas was always portrayed in the comics as Superboy, not Superman yet, flying mm -hmm. with two suitcases in his hand, with tears in his eyes, because we're looking down below past him 
at the tiny town of Smallville that built a giant cake the size of, uh, you know, a shopping mall. Well, it's Kansas, so, you know, the size of a whatever in Kansas. But right. it's a giant cake in pink icing. In DC Comics, every birthday cake always was colored pink. And yeah. <laughs> the lettering inscribed on it in, you know, candy lettering was, thank you, Superboy, for your years of service. We love you, Smallville, or something like that. That was the station of the cross for Superboy leaving Kansas. Yep. So we go to see the first movie. And not that I was thinking about this, but, you know, you're wondering, okay, how are the movie makers going to interpret this next station of the cross? And when I saw this scene that looked like Andrew Wyatt's Christina's World come to life, if you know that painting I'm referencing, the famous Christina's World, this Kansas with the, with mm -hmm. the figure mm -hmm. on the left, and if you saw it on a movie screen, you know, that Cinerama screen where Clark is all the way on the left and the mother's all the way on the right, and she wants to go to him, but she can't because she knows he has to leave. So her body language is leaning in towards him from the right side of the screen. And they're mouthing this dialogue, you know, Mom, I have to leave, and blah, blah, blah. And you almost want to break out in tears. And then they come together, and, and Richard Donner makes Jeffrey Unsworth, the great cinematographer, take his camera from behind them as they look out to the horizon, representing his future. The great metaphor, the horizon. And the camera sweeps up over the backs of their heads towards the horizon above the wheat fields that are bending and sway to the breeze. Do you hear the emotion in my voice? I'm trying to do yeah. the, the epiphany, the reverie that I had in the theater in December of 78, which made me return 10 times in that month just for that scene. That is the greatest superhero interpretation ever done. None That's of the Batman they, movies, yeah. none of the yep. Marvel movies, for that scene alone, that is how you cinematically translate these superhero stories. Mm -hmm. That's why Arlen, at Superman, the it's first one... all this off the air? No, no, we're still no. recording. Uh, no, 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 that that's what... That was yeah. really good shit. Was good no, but shit. You, you nailed it right on the head. Uh, this is why I always say that Superman 1 is still the greatest adaptation of, of uh, any comic book movie ever made. In live action. In live action, yeah. Batman I mean, without a doubt. series by Bruce Timm that I've lectured on and written articles about is the Master greatest Phantasm. adaptation of any comic character in any medium to another medium. Um, the sophistication of the stories, the the amount of them, yeah. the quality of them, um, the way he interprets Batman, uh, everything about Bruce Tim. That's why he's a legend. But uh, in live action, yeah, for me, it's that first Superman movie, and that's really it. After that, yeah. I'm unhappy with all of the live action Batman. I hate the outfits. <laughs> I hate. The what, do you, what do you think of uh, Ben Affleck's time as Batman? Okay, again, my Batman is not this bulky, burlap-suited Batman with a construction worker's belt and clodhopper boots with a giant black rectangle, you know, sewn to his burlap costume that doesn't even look like a bat. He's black rectangle man, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and the point is, is that comes from that Verschluggener Dark Knight. 
We have been living with Frank Miller's vision of a bulky old Batman with stubble on his face wearing a construction. He's supposed to be an acrobat. Listen. Yeah. Till they make a live action movie that looks like the Neil Adams Batman and Mm. just go back and look at the way he drew Batman between the years 68 and 74, Neil's golden age at DC Comics. You look at the raft of Batman stories that he illustrated, the covers that he drew. That Batman is the live-action Batman that they've never made. Until they can figure out a way to make Batman in live-action look like Neil Adams Batman. Listen, they've done it for Spider-Man. Every live-action Spider-Man. Yeah, but Spider-Man's a little bit easier because of the way the costume is It's designed. The way you slice it. Listen, once the mask is on, it's a stuntman. You're casting Bruce Wayne. True. Once yeah. the mask well, goes on, that's true too. Yeah. it's a stunt. It's all the way yeah. you interpret. You look yeah. at the great Neil Adams Batman, and you figure out how to make that into live action. There's your blueprint. Yeah. His comics are like storyboards. They're film on paper. He's so, uh, the great Batman, and nobody in Hollywood can figure it out. So are you, are you uh, excited at all for uh, Robert Pattinson's uh, Batman uh, Twilight crossover? Uh, Mechanical-looking, <laughs> bloated... Michelin Man rubber <laughs> outfit with the open eye holes or the black mascara. Listen, until they make a scene <laughs> where Batman is at his bat vanity in the bat cave and Alfred is going, Master Bruce, it's the bot signal. You're wanted by Commissioner Gordon right away. And I'll get drive through. Putting on his bat mascara. <laughs> Hold on, Alfred, I'll be right there. <laughs> this. Yeah, until they have a scene like that in the movies. Sorry, Batman's got white yeah. one-way lenses just like Spider-Man. Can you imagine, guys, oh, if any so live-action Spider-Man movies had open eye holes with white mascara? Fans yeah. would <laughs> the Marvel Studios like the George Floyd protests on steroids. I'd riot. Forget Antifa, I'd riot at that point. Yeah. Why is it okay for Batman but not okay for Spider-Man? The closest we got to that, though, uh, Arlen, is uh, the Nolan five movie. Five seconds when he had the white. Right. Yeah, for five seconds in the film. Big deal. And and yeah, every fanboy in theaters. And every fan in theaters, like, lost his shit. Because that's, like, the coolest scene in the movie. The the scene where you can see the white eyes of Batman in the Dark Knight. And every fanboy. I remember the moment in theaters when I saw that movie. Everybody went bananas. Meanwhile, yeah. Robert Pattinson has open eye holes with black mascara. Okay. Yeah. Go for it. And let me tell you something. I don't care about the rest of the movie. I don't care about the rest of the Christopher Nolan movies. If the central comic character, these comic characters are visual icons. Batman is cool in the comics when he's drawn right because when he's in the shadows, all yeah. you see are those white slits. If he's yep. got open eye holes and black mascara, can't see it. That yeah. very important visual aspect. These Correct. characters are visual icons. When you make movies, you know, in the comics, Hawkeye, the archer from Marvel, has yeah. this flamboyant purple, and, pink, purple yeah. and blue costume <laughs> with silver studs. I mean, if they made that, it would be cool as hell. But what is he in the movies? Jeremy Renner wearing a black turtleneck. Yeah. And a flat top, yeah. Me? That ain't Hawkeye. These That's what the, uh, are visual icons. That's why I love Stargirl, because they throw him back to, like, the old school, the way the costumes would look. 
a little bit, and I, I like some of that stuff they're doing on there. Supergirl's garbage, but Stargirl is like actually pretty decent. So. You no, know, they all come from that same Greg Berlanti mill, which I'm so I gave up on Flash. I gave up on uh, what else was I? I gave Black Lightning a try. I gave Star. I gave Batwoman a try. Have you seen Stargirl? There, I gave Stargirl a try. It still is that same. Um, middle like of the it. road approach. It's still that same Berlanti style, which I'm really sick of. You watch Doom Patrol yet? Give these superhero shows. Doom you Patrol. Know, it's funny. Marvel movies they've given to different writers and directors, and that's why they're successful. Whereas yeah. DC has has not imitated that approach in their television shows. Just like in the movies when they gave everything to Zack Snyder, and look how that turned out. Here we go. They haven't followed the Marvel <laughs> model of spreading the wealth. So in TV, they've given everything to Greg Berlanti. Everything. So what are your thoughts on the in Snyder the Cut? Of television with so many great shows, you know, Killing Eve and all these shows. There should be listen. That one show with the uh, the boys is the greatest superhero adaptation yeah. I've seen. That yes. first season blew my mind. That episode, I think it was episode four, where they're on the airplane, and it's crashing, and they have to decide, do we save the people? You know, spoiler yeah. alert. And they, that was the most harrowing eight minutes of television I've ever seen in my life. That was a brilliant adaptation, The Boys, and I'm looking yeah. forward to season two. But this Greg Berlanti Hallmark card you know, you know, it's a, it's. I, listen, no offense, some of my best friends are gay, but I hate to say it, but when the right wing conservatives talk about Hollywood's gay agenda, Greg Berlanti shows are Exhibit A for the prosecution. That's because, general politics, yeah, it's you know, a full effect. I think the entire yeah. season of Supergirl, a season or two ago, was basically how to come out as a lesbian. It was a manual. Yes. They're still Hell. doing it. All the, that's that's all they're doing in the, in the DC uh, TV universe. Like every episode uh, of every show has something to do with the LGBT element of P community. Hey, listen, X Men was about the LBG. Again, there are but they ways did it in they did it classy and with taste. In yeah. without it being dominant and hitting you over the head with it. Correct. You know, there's a way to have. Listen, Rod Serling did it in Twilight Zone. Yep. Yep. Roddenberry did it in Star Trek. You've yep. got to balance, not that it's easy, but you've got to balance a social message in your entertainment with entertainment. And when you go too heavy on the social message, I think it ruins the entertainment aspect. There's no, you lose line. And you lose your core audience, which is what happened with um, DC for a while. It would happen uh, with Star and Wars now. It hasn't hurt Greg Berlanti because they keep giving him a show to do. <laughs> yeah. Greg Berlanti Empire is like an octopus taking over everything. But like yeah, Supergirl, true. I only watch it because I think Melissa Benoist is a great Supergirl, and yet she's a supporting character in her yeah. own show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Straight yeah. up, that's how I felt, too. Every yeah. character in every Greg Berlanti show has superpowers. Black Lightning, within two episodes, both of his daughters have superpowers. <laughs> have they given yeah. superpowers to the wife? But I'm just saying, in terms of Greg Berlanti specifically, I feel that he lays it on way too heavy, but obviously the powers be at DC and Warner Brothers, which owns them, they like Berlanti. The shows are successful. Like I said, they keep giving him more shows. So, unfortunately, I find his approach 
to be syrupy and sappy and and way too heavy with what I consider a a a gay version of heterosexual romance, which is all foreplay and no real sex. The golden age of Hollywood that people talk about was largely made by closeted gay writers and directors. And it's all foreplay. But if you notice on The Flash, nobody ever kisses. Nobody actually has, in a sense, television sex. But they look into each other's eyes. They, they express their feelings. They talk about their feelings. And the problem is, it's not just one scene at the end of the show. It's all during the episode for the entire hour. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of crying, too. Nothing wrong with gay people. Nothing wrong with having lesbian characters. Nothing wrong with any of that per se. But when you're talking about creative work, it's all how you do it. Frank Capra was accused of being heavy-handed. They called it Capricorn. Serling was accused of being heavy-handed. They were called Serling Sermons. Nothing wrong... I, I love the comic book series by Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. I'll be doing a webinar. It's the 50th anniversary. But they were heavily criticized for being heavy-handed about uh, relevance and the characters interacting with real-world American problems. You know, yeah. nowadays, people don't want their artists... Look at what they did to the Dixie Chicks when an art... How dare an artist not also be an American citizen and speak his mind. For some reason, artists like animals in a zoo should just be performing their art and should shut up. I don't buy that at all. We are all well, look, Americans. Yeah, but, but, look what's happening, but look what's happening now where Hollywood's opening their mouth about everything and everybody, and now it's not just the Dixie Chicks. Uh, you know, Chappelle had a really funny quote but about Hollywood this. Uh, but Chappelle... Like no, I know, but Chappelle did a funny uh, thing about this when 9-11 happened. He said uh, everybody was, uh, you know, calling out for Ja Rule's advice, Ja Rule's style. And he's like, who cares what Ja Rule thinks right now when we're going through 9-11? Like, let's get on with it, you know, like, and, and find out what the hell happened. Uh, that's kind of like where I'm at with a lot of these things. But it, it is funny that you're getting more and more of Hollywood, and you know, like, going out there. And a lot of the, the stuff that's coming out now, uh, whether it be through cancer culture or uh, the agendas that are being pushed that are, you know, finally pissing people off. A lot of that stuff is rubbing people the wrong way because we missed that old time uh, creative, uh, you know, mythology uh, listen, building. Listen, we might as well do a whole nother podcast about this because I'm on the yeah. opposite end of the political spectrum than you. The bottom line is all <laughs> of that culture back then that I love and grew up with Listen, Serling cast the first black man in a dramatic television role. No, but that, black man. But, but we're on the same page on that, so we're not listen, that far apart. <laughs> culture, like everything, was white. Everything was white. Blacks knew their place. There were no Latinos on television. Roger, Serling as an example, wanted Star Trek to be multicultural at a time when the phrase wasn't being used. Do you know that Uhura was going to quit Star Trek after the first season because she wanted to be an actress. She wanted to go on Broadway. And yeah. she thought Star Trek was limiting. Do you know why she stayed in Star Trek the next two seasons? I uh, wasn't. Story. Go ahead. I, I know the story, but go, go for it. She was either in New York or Los Angeles. I forget where she was. But the bottom line is she was having dinner at some fancy place. And somebody came up to her and said, there's a uh, man who wants to talk to you. And... 
black man comes up to her, and it's Martin Luther King. Yeah. And he said to her, I love you in Star Trek. My kids watch you. You're such a great example of black people taking their position in society on television. And she was like, and she retells this in her autobiography when she says, I didn't know what to tell the guy. I love Martin Luther King, but now I got to tell him I'm leaving Star Trek. <laughs> so she told him, she goes, she goes, thanks for the compliments, but I've got to leave the show. And he was like, you can't leave. You don't realize you, you represent a role model, blah, 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 blah. And the bottom line is, she listened to King. Yeah. Stayed. The point is, is the good old days, yeah, they were good for the white power structure. They were not good for blacks. They were not good for women. They were not represented. So, yes, you know, when there's a black human torch, get used to it. If we were on, you know, a planet and we taught the Martians who were all green Shakespeare, they'd be performing Shakespeare with people who were green. It wouldn't matter. Art is timeless and transcendental. But the so, idea so they have the black transgender woman playing Superman. Would you be okay with that? The way things were were not the good old days for a, a, a huge segment of the population, including right. the people you're descended from, Angel es, Espino or whatever Cuba. your name is. Cuba. What? Okay. Cuba. My point is there were no Cubans on we're, television either. We're, we're not represented in the past. A uh, long time ago in the galaxy, far, far away. We're not represented in Star Trek in the future. We're not represented anywhere. They don't like My us. My point is, <laughs> it's an ongoing project. The U.S. is a work in progress, as it's yeah. always been. We're still dealing with, with slavery. We're still dealing with issues that we didn't resolve in the Civil War. We didn't resolve 50 years ago during the Civil Rights Movement. And we're still dealing with them. Women have made every every segment of the population has made progress. I'm a Jew. There are more anti-Semitic incidents against Jews in the last three years than against any other minority. We're number one. Did you read the recent uh, NFL player? What's his name? That came out with anti-Semitic remarks and then Nick Cannon. Which one? Just was fired. <laughs> Which yeah. One? Yeah, it's a lot. But uh, some well-known NFL player, I forget his name, and I love the NFL, so... I just can't think of it right now. The point is, is, you know, things were never good for any of the minorities, including the American Yeah, but Indians. you got you to understand, though. Uh, yeah, but know, you got to understand, uh, a lot of this stuff that's happening is because it's election year. Uh, there's a lot of groups that are, are, like, completely, like, engulfing flames that really don't need to be engulfed. We could have civil discourse and not have to have riots and looting in the streets and have progress really happen without destroying our own, George you know, Floyd our own place getting down. murdered a year ago. Oh, that triggered a lot of it, but that, that triggered a lot of it, yeah. never yeah. had video of a white supremacist staring at the camera with a smirk on his face, with his hands in his pocket, while he murdered a black man with his knee on his neck in real time for eight minutes, while the other but Arlen, Arlen, stood by Arlen. and did nothing. But Arlen, here... I don't buy your idea that, yeah, oh, this no, is no, no. an election here. No, no, Arlen, but here's, here's the thing, though. You say that, and yeah, he, he murdered uh, George Floyd, no doubt. But there was a black officer, an Asian officer, and two white officers. None of them did a thing. Okay, on the day let it happen, and they're all guilty, and the law was going to arrest every one of them. The rest of stuff that's been happening, and you can look it up, I'm not making this up, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, 
They're all going back to act blue. They're feeding into a frenzy, and it's all done because it's election year. They took this First one event all, from a bad seed, and they're running around with it. And it's anti-fa. It, it, it's not it's, anti-fa. It is what it is. It's anti-fascist. And if you are pro, it is what it is. If you're anti-anti-fascist, you know what that makes you? A fascist. So no, that makes me logical that because they're using a term. No, no, no. They're using they're using a term like Black Lives Matter, which we all know they do. But they're using terms which are to subliminally make you think it's right. But yet all they're doing is causing problems and riots and looting and all kinds of issues. That's the difference. You're using a term that is it's you know a good term, and then you're you're justifying using that term and doing the you know really evil vile things. Sins on drinking the antifa Kool Aid. Okay? No, that's the reality of, of life. Unfortunately, on this is not a political show, so we we don't want to get into more into that. Conservatives need a boogeyman. And G- no, the boogeyman is Nancy Pelosi. That is the boogeyman, Nancy Pelosi. Congratulations, Angel. Arvin, Arvin, we're, we're better when we're talking about comics because you're completely Arvin, wrong on this topic. You're completely wrong. You're Hideous. This is the this is the worst uh, historical part of your entire career, this moment right here. Everything else is brilliant, but your politics, I'm sorry, just, yeah, no. Well, we'll never agree. <laughs> Don't do a webinar on politics. You'll be okay. You, but everything else, man, I love the, uh, the Twilight right, Zone all stuff. All the <laughs> culture that you love, all the pop culture, was mostly created by left-leaning liberals, many Jews, many people that you're right. I'm, I'm not. I'm not arguing any of that. But see, you're, that's where you're wrong. I'm not arguing any of that. See that you're making assumptions. Shoot, Ireland, you're making assumptions where you're completely 100% wrong about me. I don't discriminate against any of that. I'm just making all that up. You don't know your yes. history. I know a little bit better than you when it comes to this politics hey. stuff because you're absolutely wrong. But anyway, we hey, have to go. We're, we're short on time. Uh, but listen, again, I want to make sure I get the uh, plug out there. NYAdventureClub.com. Webinar yes. is on July 22nd, 8 p.m. Eastern. And uh, they can follow you on Arlen, uh, ArlenSchumer.com. So make anybody sure wants to follow you there. A-R-L-E-N-S-C-H-U-M-R. No, I mean, uh, again, uh, much respect, man. I really enjoyed having you on. And we definitely have to have you back on. And uh, if you want to do politics, we'll do that on my other... We'll do, we'll do it on my Sunday podcast, because that's where we do politics. We don't do it on this podcast. I know, I know. But, uh, but definitely we'll... Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, get, I get yelled at when we do politics on this uh, Thursday night show. So. <laughs> Johnny, nice meeting you, man. I hope to meet you one day in person. Yeah, uh, it was really cool meeting you, too, and... I just wanted to like leave off with a really neat thing and um, about Bruce Springsteen. What makes him probably the king? Staying power. I've been alive on this planet almost 39 years, and yep. he has been ever-present my entire life. I don't remember a single period of time I've been alive where that guy wasn't doing something. Which, you know, okay, that kind Johnny, of, email little... me, email me at arlen at arlenschumer.com, and I'll send you some Bruce material that will blow your mind. Pow, pow. Sounds like a plan, boss. Okay. Wonderful you meeting you, by the way. You got it. Guys, we're all out of time, and uh, this has been a lot of fun and, and heated at the end. That was cool. Uh, we'll be I back next. i it up, man. You're a boxer. You're like hitting. I feel you. I understand. You're a historian and a boxer. 
at, at yes. top of the everything. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to be back next Thursday right here on the roundtable on PSN-radio.com and SoFlow Radio. Please uh, stick around. There's more content coming up uh, Some uh, that's going to blow your mind on both networks. And, uh, again, catch me on Sunday uh, this uh, week. I'm going to have uh, another live episode on Inside the Jackal's Head where we get very political. And uh, it goes a little bit more heated and crazier than this, even though this week we're going to take it nice and slow and uh, mellow. It's been a rough week. Uh, we all miss uh, George, of course, here on the network. And uh, rest in peace to our good friend, George Rodriguez. Uh, we love him. We miss him. And uh, shout-outs to wherever he is. I know he's uh, looking down, laughing his ass off right now because he loves this kind of, like, back and forth. So yeah. you would have made it tonight, Arlen. This would have been like, you would have been calling it right now saying, right on, brother, right on. Like, because, you know, <laughs> you and him are a lot closer on that uh, political spectrum. That's great to know. Uh, That's great like to George, George is, uh, you know, was an awesome human being. We all miss him to Sounds death. Sounds like it, like a real mentor to you. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it definitely was. And, uh, guys, I want to give also a quick shout-out uh, to our networks. Uh, besides SoFlo Radio and PSN Radio, Global Enlightenment Radio Network has picked us up. Uh, the great Odin uh, from over there has uh, made that happen. And uh, shout-outs to him and the network uh, for doing that for us. And Michelle for setting up the interview here also. Uh, yeah, quick, uh, thank shout you, out there. Yeah, she's great. Guys, the next time, we're, we're about 30 seconds before, before we got to head out. So, Arlen, once again, thank you so much for being here with us, man. You're Thanks awesome. Thanks for having me, Angel. I appreciate it. Take care, everybody. We'll be back next week. Catch you. Roundtable.